A good morning to you and welcome to Real Talk on this Wednesday morning. It's May 12th. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside Sarah Hoyles and Samuel Brooks. Of course, every morning, Real Talk is brought to you by the team at Bitcoin Well, our presenting sponsor. They've been there since day one and they've been in the crypto game. I can't say since day one, but in this field, in this context, if you've got seven or eight years worth of history behind you, you are an OG. You've seen the rises, the dips, the highs, the lows. You've got the experience people need when they got questions about crypto. When we have questions, we go to the team at Bitcoin. Well, you can do the same by finding them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. In about 10 minutes time, we're going to check in with uh, intensive care Dr. Darren Markland. Uh, he was scheduled to be with us last week. And you may remember that show. He he sent his regrets uh, moments before, which which we had paved the way for. We said, Doc, hey, listen, uh, you need to be where you need to be. And, and, and sometimes that's on the front line of this battle, this COVID-19 battle that sees intensive care units across Canada, in some cases filling up, in other cases, full. I hesitate to use the word overwhelmed. We'll ask the doctor if that word works, but it would imply, I think, that healthcare staff are, are on their heels or, or somewhat not up to the task. And that's certainly not the case. But the good doctor last week wrote to us in a quick email, like one or two sentences. He said, hey, listen, I'm literally running around the ICU today, he says we're going to have to reschedule it, painted a really clear picture for us about what the reality is in Alberta and Canada's ICU. So Dr. Darren Markland coming up in about 10 minutes time. I'm looking forward to checking in with uh, outdoor adventure and travel blogger Philip Turnbull, who's written a piece on uh, Alberta's new Kananaskis Conservation Pass for the first time since the park was opened by former Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed. There will be visitors will face a park pass Cost. That's right. Ninety bucks for annual access to the parks with some areas exempted and, and, and some park goers exempted as well. The government says lower income Albertans will not be paying the ninety dollar annual fee, but we'll get Mr. Turnbull's take on whether or not he thinks it's a good move. Some people have stepped forward in support. As a matter of fact, Joe Lougheed out of Calgary, a lawyer with with ties to the former premier, as, as you may presume, has spoken out and said by way of his Twitter account, hey, look, this these fees are going to go towards this and, and this might not be the worst thing in the world. Those are my words, not his. And uh, so not everybody is decrying this. Others, though, the critics of the fee are saying, hey, listen, first of all, how do we know it's actually going to go to to conservation or to park operating expenses? And also isn't the whole point of, of provincial parks, the fact that they belong to all of us that there is no pay to play, so to speak, that that families that maybe have had a rough go, you know, that have, that have dipped into the RSPs or maxed the lines of credit because they haven't worked in 18 months and, and they know they want to take the kids somewhere special this summer, but they can't afford to do something wild. So they're going to go out and do something truly in the wild, get out into the parks, get out into the back country, spend minimal money for maximum return. You see how you can torque these conversations, right? Because parks matter to people. People love their parks. And so when you start introducing fees when you haven't had them before, well, it rubs some people the wrong way. We're curious for your take on this. Of course, Sarah will be keeping an eye on the live chat on our hashtag RealTalkRJ powered by 
park power. And of course, you can always send us an email via talk at ryanjesperson.com. I'm very much looking forward to a conversation with documentary filmmaker Daniel Lombroso, uh, who's the director behind White Noise. Uh, it's being presented right now on demand. As, as a matter of fact, as soon as Real Talk wraps, you can go watch it yourself by visiting northwestfest.ca. It's Canada's longest running uh, nonfiction documentary film festival. It runs through till May 16th. So you have four more days. I, I love this. I mean, I, I, I regret the fact that and so do the festival organizers that we can't gather in person. We can't be at the theater. The smell of fresh popcorn. I'm not going to rub it into everybody. I'm not going to remind you about everything that we miss the sensory experience of being in a theater. But typically, you know, white noise would screen, for example, you know, Tuesday at seven o'clock. And if you couldn't make it or if it was sold out, you well, tough luck now because it's on demand online. Anybody can watch white noise. You're going to want to uh, both Sarah and I did. I watched it last night. Watch it a little bit late. Um, I poured myself a prairie whiskey <laughs> and I settled it on the couch. You sort of prep yourself mentally when you're getting set to watch a documentary on white nationalism. I wasn't sure what headspace I should be in heading in. What did you make of it? To call it powerful might be an understatement, a little bit unnerving. How about for you? A little bit unnerving. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, yeah, it, it took a lot out of me. I will say that. Uh, I had to prepare myself. It was like, can't, am I ready for this? And then, yeah, just hearing the kinds of, um, hateful and hurtful sentiments that some of the folks that are featured on the film. I mean, I, I also felt like, should I be watching this? Um, am I, am I, Oh boy. Why not? Why wouldn't you watch it? Um, well, I've like, do I want to give these people space in my brain? Ah, uh, that's an interesting angle. <laughs> I'm serious. Why you? I don't. I, I hope the look on your face don't. You don't think that I'm being facetious, no, no, or no, 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 no. mocking, Sorry, no. or anything. No, I'm saying that that's that's an interesting. That's my reflective look. It's kind of the like. Um, the, I think I think of Jim Carrey in in the films where he's he's you know he's like la 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 la. la you know what I mean? Like I'm not. Gonna, I'm just not gonna. You know, if I if I don't read, if I don't do the deep dive on on you know. If I were to never learn the names Richard Spencer, Mike Cernovich, or Lauren Southern, or or for that matter, Gavin McInnes, or any of the others, and, and we could go on and on and on, yeah, uh, but, uh, but I'd hate to make anybody famous here in Canada, but if I don't learn, I mean, because you can get into real rabbit holes. As right, I was watching the film, yeah. as I was watching the film, all of a sudden I'm going, well, Cernovich, I've heard the name. But I don't know too much. There's there's certain guys where, you're, you know, you're aware of they're on your radar. For me, it would be, an, you know, like Ben Shapiro would be an example of a guy that I'm he's on my radar. And what he's doing in media is quite remarkable. Uh, a lot of the messaging is is somewhat cringeworthy for me, from my perspective. Uh, if I if I don't take a strong stance here, some people are going to accuse me of the both sides thing. Um, I'm just saying I haven't done deep dives into or read enough about Ben Shapiro, Mike Cernovich to, to say that I truly understand what they're all about. But generally speaking, it's not that difficult to, to discern what they represent or the pillars upon which their platforms are built. Right. Um, and, and so you find yourself watching a doc like white noise. And then all of a sudden there I am on their Twitter accounts, learning more about too. them and digging into it and reading more about the history. You're right. I mean, it does open the door. Then there's the whole counterpoint of sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's important 
that everybody knows about this stuff. It's important that we talk about it, that we have feature interviews like this with Daniel Lombroso coming up in an hour or whatever. So, yeah, unnerving. Mm. Interesting. I'm curious to know for, for people that haven't seen White Noise yet, which I would imagine would be the majority of you, although I suspect that by the end of our conversation with the filmmaker, that might change in the next 48 hours as people check it out. Uh, I, I'm the, the access is remarkable. It's not a film where he's grabbed a bunch of video off YouTube of them speaking and then narrated it over stock photos. He's in the cars with them. He's behind the scenes with them. He backstage somehow with them, yeah. backstage. He, he, he secured long term access and we'll get him to explain the whole filmmaking process. I'm curious to know how he secured the access, how he presented the project. And of course, what correspondence has been like with these personalities since the film came out. Mm. Right. Some pretty big implications there. It's going to be a big day here on the show. To say the very least, we're going to get into some of your emails as well. Plus, we're excited to launch a new weekly feature in partnership with our friends at Tourism Jasper called My Jasper Memory. Very excited about that. This is the first Wednesday of many to come where we're going to, well, we're all going to take a trip out to the mountains, so to speak, for a couple of moments. We love that we're doing it on hump day. We love that we're doing it in the middle of the week. Uh, it's going to turn into, uh, Sarah, Wednesday as the new Thursday. Of course, Thursday's been the new Friday for a while. So virtually, our weekends will begin every Wednesday, every Wednesday morning, thanks to the team at Tourism Jasper. Sam, you cool with it? You got the sleeves rolled up today. I feel like you could you could start to, to ease yourself mentally into the weekend. Ease myself mentally in the weekend? You just got me dreaming about Jasper. I'm, like, I might ease myself mentally into a tent on the side of a mountain. Like, boy. You know, just, yeah, you got me thinking about that now. And the thing about, about what you just said... You know, a tent on the side of the mountain and you're speaking my language. But when we say Jasper, somebody else might be picturing, oh, you, you know, oh, you had me, uh, you know, mentally out paddling on Moline Lake or, or you had me mentally doing the uh, Moline ice walk or mentally in the lobby at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge sipping on an old fashioned. Everybody's going to have a different story there. So that's coming up in just a little bit. We mentioned Real Talk RJ. That's the hashtag where you can find us. It's the hashtag I include every weekday morning around eight o'clock ish when I send out our guest list of who's going to be on the show. And if, if you're on Instagram instead, I put that on my Insta story. If you want to follow me there, our hashtag powered by the team at Park Power right now, you know, if you're a, a friend of this show, that if you use the promo code 2021-RealTalk, at parkpower.ca with no strings attached they're going to give you 70% off your rather $70 off that could have been bad $70 which is still a great deal it is a great deal 70% is a way better deal but I don't know if the team at Park Power would appreciate that 70 bucks is still pretty good I, yeah, it's better than a kick in the teeth. 70 bucks is, is dinner. Dinner's on them. 70 bucks off your first bill. Like a nice dinner. A on nice them. dinner yeah. on them. Like, that's that's the dinner where you go, uh, why, yes, I would like to add the sauteed onions, the mushrooms, the extra pork belly, the whatever, you know, whatever you have. Um, that tees up conversation about tomorrow's show on Thursday around, <laughs> doesn't it? Talking about pork belly in front of vegetarians. What am I doing here? Hey, add-ons, add-ons, baby. Back to internet, electricity, and natural gas. That's the game that Park Power's in. And they love to compete for your business. You know, you can take it anywhere you want in the province of Alberta. You have that choice. Why not support a group? Why not support a company that supports its own community through profit sharing and this show as well at parkpower.ca. Well, we've been keeping a keen eye on this month's uh, edition, this month's issue of Edify magazine, where they celebrate and recognize innovators. One of them is prominent intensive care doc Darren 
Markland, the physician featured here, and by the way, which is an absolutely incredible photo shoot. I know that he's going to deflect all recognition of that and all praise. We're very grateful that the good doctor has been able to make time for us. Welcome back to the show. You, you, one of the first guests we ever had on here back in November, um, and and I'm proud of what you've been doing. I'm happy to see it celebrated in this month's edition of Edify. What does it mean to you to be recognized as an innovator, doctor? Oh. That's such a loaded question. Um, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm not an innovator. Uh, we, we really just demonstrated commitment to the people. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, we were tested, but this, I think, I think doctors are very uncomfortable with uh, this degree of exposure uh, because we work in a system. And the reason why we did as well as we did uh, has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the system and the people who ran it under some pretty adverse circumstances. Uh, our nurses, our respiratory therapists, everyone just comes together all the time. Uh, and that's especially salient as during our third wave when we all kind of said, oh, it's going to happen again. We got to do this one more time. Um, but we did. And so you know, it's it's difficult when you focus on one person when really what makes this work is just the whole group. You're you're recognized as an innovator in the context of, of how you have uh, managed. It's kind of funny. I find myself just to, to take you into my brain for a second. I, I feel like I'm being really careful about the words I pick and the words I choose. Even in teeing up this conversation, Doc, I, you know, I, 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 I caught myself as I was about to say, as ICUs across Canada are overwhelmed because I felt like that word implies that either the, the incredible staff in there are incapable or that they that they're you know, there's an insufficiency of resources where I know that really everybody's just pedal to the metal. Is the word overwhelmed an inaccurate one in describing ICUs right now? We hear that they're at capacity as as lay people that catches our attention. I think overwhelmed is more of an emotional phrase. Um, I think one of the analogies I gave was, you know, driving down a mountain road with spongy brakes uh, that you're not familiar with. Um, you're, you're mashing the corners and you're tail sliding, but you're doing good. Uh, it's just, you don't know what the next corner has. And uh, I think you probably, people who follow me know that um, my tweets sometimes reflect my inner stress. Uh, and I try to be optimistic, uh, but it's also I try to be very honest about what's going on. And so where we were overwhelmed is just not knowing what was coming up. We had plans. We knew we could function really well together. Uh, it's just when you're not sure if your brakes are, are working, you are really worried about what's coming up around the bend. You have, I mean, your social media has been, and I could pick any number of examples, but you, you really have put it out there and, and people really have connected. Um, I, I know you probably won't appreciate this, this characterization, but you're, you're a Twitter celebrity. Uh, and, and when it comes to what, I know you don't like it, but it's true. I mean, you know, 25,000 people follow you across Canada because of the insights you provide. And they're not all just number crunching. Uh, they're not all just, hey, everybody, wash your hands, wear a mask. You talk about your personal exhaustion. You talk about your self-care, you know, your cycling, the way that you get to work through Edmonton's famed River Valley. You share stories of of people exasperated. I mean, your story the other day. Can I ask you to share about the the fella who's 
was he being intubated? You'll have to remind me. And he's on the phone with his employer and you had to take over the phone call. I mean, we don't get insights, insights like this all the time. Yeah, we, we see that what this pandemic does has amplified, you know, the cracks that were always there. I mean, everyone talks about how, you know, lockdowns cause mental stress. But if you don't have the ability to lock down, that's where the stress comes. This is why we're seeing so much uh, substance abuse and so much trauma is that there are people who just don't have the privilege to be able to work from home or be able to take some time off. Uh, and I think what I've seen this, I, I work in an inner city hospital where we see disparities all the time, but you know, you can, you can, you can be in this environment and become numb to it. And I think that is what this has done to me. This has been my awakening and it's happened in real time on social media, which has good aspects and bad ones. Um, this gentleman uh, is just an example of so many people that we see are just living on the edge right now. Uh, and I think that is a culmination of everybody's frustration. And for someone in this circumstance to be thinking how important it was to tell his boss that he wasn't going to be in um, was huge. Like that just suddenly hit me. I think everybody has had a cold or been unwell and like, Oh, I better call my boss. This, this guy was incredibly unwell and he just had no idea. He, he was so focused on the lifeline. That was his job. It meant everything. And I mean, that, that, that was a wake up call that just showed me the social disparities that we deal with in ICU and how by the time it comes to us, the road is set, the path is there. Um, and that maybe this hard work should, these resources should be focused in other places. And I mean, that's where it starts to turn into the whole politicization of healthcare. But when I'm seeing people die of social deaths, as a physician, how can I not acknowledge that what's driving a lot of our critical care problems are disparities and prejudices? Can I, I don't have a, prof can I just ask you to expand on that? I mean, disparities, disparities and prejudices, we, we've actually had some really interesting commentary, including in the last couple of weeks on the show about, about, you know, uh, what you might describe as as uh, systemic racism in healthcare. We've we've heard from a, a professor of nursing at the University of Alberta as an example. We got some insight there. Uh, what I think is is important. Let me just establish this for audience members who may be hearing from you for the first time here on this show, who may be from other parts of Canada or outside Canada. Uh, you're a physician. You're an ICU doctor at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in uh, central Edmonton, correct? Which is, which is uh, for people that don't know, it's probably the busiest ER in central and northern Alberta. Correct me if I'm wrong. And it sees uh, pretty interesting traffic in there. Uh, I shouldn't call it traffic. A pretty interesting demographic in there because you have people in the inner city. Um, but I would imagine that you've probably seen um, maybe what do I want to call it? More, more diversity in the demographic with regards to the ICU now in COVID. I mean, have you, have, has your perspective changed on some of the social disparities and, and, and have you had a, maybe even an epiphany? I've had a slow awakening and it's funny, right? These things are like exponential curves. I remember training mm -hmm. and having some very controversial views uh, because we, we, 
grow up in the environment that we're taught. Uh, but I've seen evolution of uh, and realization amongst medicine. I completely acknowledge that racism exists in medicine. Um, I completely acknowledge that there are, that there are prejudices. Um, I've said that for a while, but now I'm now it's it's really hitting home uh, because you can separate yourself from the extreme cases. And at the Alec, you know, we see people in extremists. We see homelessness a lot. We see people who um, are, are, are dying from complications of drug use. But when it starts to get closer to home, when you see people who look like your neighbors and uh, your acquaintances uh, coming in because they can't separate themselves, they have to go to work, they get sick because their kids are sick and they end up on a ventilator, all of a sudden, you know, the connections happen and you realize that this is a spectrum disorder, that if we allow these thoughts to propagate in, you know, what we consider our altruistic places, uh, they poison the connections and we have to fix those things. And that that's that's working on the social glue that keeps us all together. That's what bugs me about COVID, right? Um, I, I'm just a doc with a big Twitter account. Um, what I should really be doing is fixing the bigger problems, but I really like working with people. Um, I Public health, public policy, um, addiction control. Some of our, our physicians who are in this are taking the brunt um, and they just don't have the, the, the luxury to sit back and take the compliments from their patients or from the people who are on their social media feed. This is what we need to fix. Had a, an amazing conversation with uh, OBGYN uh, Dr. Fiona Matatal the other day uh, about social media and about advocacy and how so many physicians and healthcare professionals have have found themselves in an, in a somewhat unusual and even I, I I can't stand using the word everybody has to use it in the course of the pandemic but an un unprecedented I had to say it I had to say it in an unprecedented position of 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 really having to fight for basic respects um, to counter some narratives to work on educating and informing the public. Um, and I'm not just talking about even on the politics of it. I'm talking around things like, you know, hesitance around vaccines or, um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, even people denying the very existence of COVID. It's it's been a fascinating year to see physicians and other healthcare professionals step up in that role and people in other fields, for that matter. A shout out to educators in particular. Natalie, I wanted to tee up this next question. Natalie Jolie out of, of St. Albert says, uh, in referencing our conversation with Jason Kenny, who made his debut on the show uh, just the other day uh, out of Richmond, Virginia, of course, not Alberta's premier, but but Jason Kenny out of Richmond, Virginia. Fantastic conversation. He calls himself a pre Trump Republican. And Natalie watched and she says uh, to me on Twitter, this might be the most uh, thoughtful interview about politics I've, I've heard in years. I love the idea we should be listening to and learning from everyone, no matter their political affiliations. I love that from Natalie. But but here's the response that really got me. From Tom Wilson, who notes that he's he's not the hockey player. He doesn't he doesn't want everybody ganging up on him. He says Jesperson keeps finding people whose political priorities I do not share, but who are compassionate, thoughtful human beings that recultivate my faith in humanity. That to me is is some of the best praise and best feedback that a, that a talk show could ever achieve. But what it indicates to me is that these audience members are here as an engaged, dynamic audience. An audience that is open minded, that approaches this almost as a gathering of community every single day. So when you say this is my preamble, but I wanted to tee it up when you tell us that this pandemic has reiterated to you that our healthcare system 
is racist and that there are social disparities that exist and that are perpetuated, people are going to want to know what are we going to do about it? It's going to bother people that the healthcare system that they participate in is being described as racist by a pretty high profile doctor that knows the inside. So where do we start? I think we acknowledge it, right? Um, I, that's been my first step is to realize that um, some of my language and some of my approach and just my my inherent reactions to common clinical presentations are based on things that were 10, 15 years ago, which weren't right back then. Um, we need to do some fundamental stuff about the way that we believe how we connect with Indigenous people. Um, we have to do real reconciliation. Uh, we have to separate judgment of mental health from physical health. I mean, mental health is such an important part of the onus. And we really have to decriminalize our thinking about addictions uh, because it's just a way of separating us from them. You know, the difference between me and somebody who rolls through the emerge is I just spend more on a bottle of wine, right? Um I think those are the bridges that we need to build. And I've seen a lot of it happen on the municipal level. You know, I, uh, I, I've had people on Twitter who, who have, you know, educated me gently without uh, setting me back, um, both from uh, our history and also from our perspectives, both gender and sexuality and race uh, and privilege. Privilege is this huge word that you say it and people will shut down really quick. But, uh, you know, when you have enough people behind you just giving you gentle glacial nudges, uh, I think we start to move in the right direction. And you're right. When you talk about bringing in empathy, what you're talking about is depolarizing the arguments. Uh, and social media is great in one respect because you get to go up to the cliff and shout. But where it really leads to problems is when, you know, you have a limited venue to talk about nuanced issues. And bringing, you know, people into the middle is is what we used to do before social media. We got together, you look somebody in the eye and you're not going to lead with your fist. You're going to have a nuanced discussion. That's what this does. And and even just, you know, the, the isolation, like the actual literal physical isolation. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I say the word with a straight face. I acknowledge some people have really isolated others, you know, end the lockdown, they say, as they march through shopping malls. And I, I digress. Uh, but we are more withdrawn, more removed from regular social interaction than we might normally be. Um, there's not the rubbing shoulders at the at the opera or the hockey game. There's there's not the big fundraising galas in in the convention centers. And you don't find yourself face to face with as many people. And I find even with myself subconsciously, I think it impacts how you conduct yourself and how you interact. I mean, if somebody were to have a position or, or to make a statement with which you might not align uh, in person, you would handle it much differently than if you know you're never going to see this person's face and you're interacting online. I mean, it's weird what can happen. I, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody else. Yeah. Okay. It's been going on forever. I mean, when, when I take a consult over the phone versus when I see someone in, you know, in real life, you're going to be, very different um we have to figure out you know first of all yeah we are inherently social people we uh and social media is a filter that allows the best and the worst of us to come out um i never realized how again this word privilege i was that i get to go to work every single day uh, and that means my social structures have been preserved so 
in a way, I'm not getting how lonely and how separated people are out there. So for me to stand up and say, you need to separate, you need to mask, you know, I'm not in a way, like I'm not feeling it the way everybody else is. I get why people need to be connected. I know why people need to be connected. Uh, One of the things that I think this pandemic has done is it has kind of stepped back all the things that I had worked on outside of medicine, you know, getting people together, community-based, um, looking at social connection, that's hard. And I really believe this is why vaccines are so important is that this is the only way that we're going to get back to some normalcy because social media is, uh, man, it just pushes all the dopamine sensors and we, we want to feel dopamine, but there, there's no repercussions. There's nothing to pull us back from the brink when uh, we keep mashing that like button. I've got uh, I had emails uh, leading up to this. As a matter of fact, we were getting emails about this interview last week um, uh, and I've just written down the names. I don't have all the emails in front of me, but like Lindy and Daniel and Karen uh, and Brenda and others all had questions. Generally speaking, if I can lump them all together on you providing a perspective check on how we're doing right now on on what the ICUs look like, um, I think a pretty important perspective check comes in the form of this article in edify people can read it at edifyedmonton.com. uh you and that's hobbs is that right that's my dog. by the way <laughs> good looking boy good boy hobbs and uh anyway the icu here has doubled its bed count i'm telling your audience not you doctor from 25 to 50 floor space has ballooned uh, from its 10,000 square feet pre-pandemic, you've taken over post-operative recovery rooms. Elective surgeries have been canceled as a result. Um, an ICU that would normally see patients uh, from northern BC, the Northwest Territories and elsewhere. Um, you and your colleagues have been pulling 100-hour work weeks for months. Um, on many days, you've not seen your family. You've been staying at the hospital, sleeping on a couch. Would this be the same thing? Minus 25 to 50 patients three years ago or is most of this has all of this over the past year been new for you we've seen spikes uh influenza gets us really busy but not not like this um uh we initially the second wave was a pretty dark place because uh we were seeing much older patients this was before our vulnerable population was was vaccinated and so what really drove a lot of the stress was the ethical dilemmas about what's going to happen uh, when people of older ages come into our ICU. Will will they benefit from care? Will we have to make some very hard decisions uh, about, you know, do we proceed down the standard pathways? We didn't know back then. Um, now that we've seen people vaccinated, our ICU is a very different place. I'm actually, I, I, I have cautious and guarded optimism about our third wave because vaccines have been working as we now only see our younger people coming into hospital. Yes, the numbers are high, but the complications are lower. We're turning people over faster. There's less ethical dilemma because when somebody's 40, you know you gotta go hard because they will see benefit to it and they have many years ahead to get better. So we compound with a good vaccine supply with people who are motivated to take the best vaccine available. Um, and it's, it's working out. We're, we're busy uh, now. We are full. We've taken over more spaces in the hospital. But our general sense is that, uh, 
yeah, we can see light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, and we just got to get everybody, you know, we got to get those shots in the arms. And my biggest hope is that we can get around the vaccine hesitancy because that's now the obstacle. Um, the hospital works, the system works, management has, knows what they do. We can procure supplies. But what really is going to make sure that there isn't a fourth wave and that this doesn't become a, a thing that keeps happening is that we get these shots in people's arms, that we get 80% of people vaccinated. Because this stuff works. It is working on every single variant, right? Um, there were all these concerns out of the lab, but the real life truth is that all of these vaccines prevent all of these variants and keep you out of the ICU. So that's what's going to get us back to being who we were before, hopefully better than we were before. We were talking yesterday about uh, Justice Minister Casey Maddow's comments about how the, the provincial NDP, the federal liberals and the media wanted to see hospitals overwhelmed and wanted to see, uh, you know, real problems when it came to COVID-19. At first, his staff insisted he would not apologize. Then uh, then the premier claimed he had not seen the comments, which is obviously untrue. And then what do you know, the justice minister issuing an apology late last night. We talked about it on the show briefly yesterday. And I got a bit of feedback from audience members that said, Ryan, one of the things you didn't even touch on is at the beginning of the justice minister's comments on Facebook to a constituent. He essentially said, basically, we're almost out of the woods on this. And one listener said, Ryan, you just breezed past that like that wasn't worth discussion. Um, are we? I mean, is that politicking? The government would love nothing more. And I don't blame them. I don't blame everybody for for wishing. I'm among them wishing that we were almost out of the woods on this. Do you see evidence of it? I mean, I know you're going to say it might be predicated on 70 percent or more of the population becoming vaccinated. But do you see signs that give you reason to be optimistic Look, the woods are different than they were 15 years ago or 15 months ago. Um, so, yeah, we're coming out of the woods, but we could easily go back into them uh, if we don't learn from our mistakes. The challenge about uh, this pandemic is it it seeds much deeper issues in the world. Um, and we have no time in this interview to go through all the potential things that we have to fix in this world. But, yeah, I'm... Uh, our numbers in the ICU are going up. If you look at the stats and if you look at all, yes, they are going up. But I think what that is, is just a surge from when we, before we put in these restrictions. These restrictions are meaningful. Uh, they will work. Uh, and like I say, I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, triage, which got everybody's gaunch in a wad. Um, uh, it was something that a discussion that I think had to be put out there, but I think we got this. Uh, but Going back to the second wave, why we're in the third wave is we got cocky. Um, and that's the other tough discussion, right? Is how do we change uh, the way that we live for the next time that we see a virus come out of the blue, come out of the woods? And how do we prevent ourselves from going back into that dark place um, when it does happen? And I'm not gonna say if, uh, we, we know the coronavirus was burbling for a long time. We know that with 8 billion people on the planet, we're effectively the meat, right? Um, we, we have to be prepared for the future. What? Hang on a second, though. I was getting set to rap, but no way. 
unless you have to go. If you have to go, we asked you to stay with us. We're, I'm already into overtime. If you have to go, we can go. Um, but but what do you mean? Because because I I mean, uh, I would compare this to like floods or wildfires, and, and we tell ourselves that when half of uh, of a Canadian province is underwater, we say it's the hundred year flood, or where when an entire city, uh, you know, home to a hundred thousand people, nearly burns to the ground, uh, we say that was a once in uh, once in a generation or a once in a century wildfire. Um, except for the folks in Slave Lake would say, yeah, except for that <laughs> there was one not too many years before that. Is it I, I've been I've been leading myself to believe and maybe I've been reading the wrong columns uh, that, you know, there was the Spanish flu in 1918 and then there was COVID-19 101 years later. And our our great grandkids might have to deal with something down the line. What, what's changed that's leading you to believe that this could become more of a frequent event? Uh Again, that's a bigger discussion that's going to light some fires of its own. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about the planet here. We're talking about biodiversity, right? The reason why this virus came out of the wild was because we pushed into the wild. Um, we uh, uh, Coronaviruses don't discriminate between uh, humans or bats. They just they want to go where the action is. They want to eat what eat the food. We're the food, right? We have effectively taken over most of the biomass of the planet. Uh, other species are getting pushed into, you know, oblivion. Not the word I wanted, but uh, we're the predominant force. Um, and we, we've known this. What, what's taken us off the bigger issues, this coronavirus pandemic has really taken us away from the reason we've gotten here. Uh, we have environmental issues, uh, and those reflect very strongly in the social justice in societal pressures. Uh, and so that's why we're seeing it, right? When, when you interact with nature, nature pushes back. And so, yeah, coronavirus is one of them. Um, with the specifics around it, yeah, it's not a virus that's gonna mutate a lot, but when you put pressure on a system, it pushes back and we will see this. Uh, that means meaningful changes with respect to environmental policy, with respect to education, with respect to birth control, third world countries, um, giving people power so that they don't need to reproduce so much, um, saving it up for the next generation, watching up CO2, checking different fuels. I mean, this big, big topic. My brain starts, I already have a big head, but it makes my head bigger, right? When I start thinking about these things. Um, and it's part of the way that I kind of live my life the way I do. I have, you know, solar panels on my house. I ride my bike. Um, you know, I try to encourage active transport. I want people to be healthy, but living in smaller footprints. Uh, I try to live that. Um, I think that's important just to be happy with smaller things. It's been so, you know, it's been so amazing. I, and I, I want, you to know, I like, as you know, but let me just say for the audience that may not be aware, I say this as a son of a physician. Okay. So this is, this is an internal perspective, but I, I think that a lot of people, this, you know, you, you alluded to earlier, you said the difference between me, I hope I'm quoting you accurately, the difference between you and some of the people you see in the ER or in the ICU uh, might be that you spend more on a bottle of wine. And that this is there's been some sort of a public sentiment and it's been fueled uh, by politicians, I think, uh, pouring gasoline on the fire, talking about, you know, for example, physicians compensation. Don't worry, I'm not going to take you into this. Um, but, okay. You know, they'll talk about, you know, they, they don't recognize, for example, that a physician's running a small business and, and, and paying for a lease and, and paying a nurse and paying all these other. You know, they'll say this doctor built Alberta Health Services for four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, a half a million dollars. You know, doctors need to take pay cuts and these one percenters and this everybody talks about these entitled doctors and physicians and we spend billions of dollars on doctors. 
And it's been really interesting for me to see over the course of the last year or so, some of the public narrative and not in a good way shift on physicians who, who are now a bunch of lefties, right? Who are now, I mean, people are calling them lefties and socialists and physicians. And it's been really interesting to see a swing. Some of the people who, t- I mean, you're, here you are an ICU doctor. And some people might say, if I can, and I'm taking liberties here, I wonder what car he drives. I wonder what his house looks like. I wonder where he goes on vacation, right? You know it, doc. Mm-hmm. Where at the same time, when you start talking about, you know, Systemic racism, social justice, access to care. I mean, these types of things you don't expect to hear. You wouldn't typically expect to hear in that conversation. I wonder if members of the public, some of them that have been the loudest critics, have had a difficult time wrapping their minds around where physicians have been going with advocacy in the past year. What do you make of that? I think that's always been a part of who we are. Um, it's it's one of the tenements of our professional association is advocacy. Uh, it's just, you know, now we're yelling it from the mountaintops because yeah. it's clear how important it is. And, you know, I, 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 I was really apolitical uh, going through school. Um, I didn't mean to become socialist. I guess when you do medicine, it just translates that way. When you see people who get sick, they get sick because they don't have guaranteed income or they lose their jobs. I mean, yes, we speak really highly of our medical system because we don't pay for it, but it's not like we've taken the next step, right? Um, We could solve homelessness very quickly like Finland has, uh, but you know, you throw that into the mix and your taxes go up. And so our Alberta advantage is low taxes, but uh, a lot of the people who take the Alberta advantages don't retire here. They don't have skin in the game in the end. I want us to build up our society so that um, you want to stay in Alberta when you're done and you want to hang out with, you know, people. And we've dealt with our mental health disorders um, by giving people houses and a chance to do the right thing. All of these people who have built themselves up from the ground really neglect the fact that they got a really good socialized education. Uh, Their parents were supported because they had healthcare and vaccinations and that uh, our public infrastructure has got them to where they need to be. And then all of a sudden they forget that and say that they're self-made. No, you know, we need a little more of that so everyone can be a little more self-made. Yeah. You wonder how many people being, being loaded up uh, into the back of an ambulance, absolutely terrified because they can't breathe um, as, as they're triaged and rushed into a bed that's available uh, most times um, onto a ventilator in, in drastic circumstances, receiving the best of care. If any of them would opt out of socialism at any of those points, uh, I don't see anybody decrying socialism. Uh, it's funny. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's been absolutely weaponized, right? And, You're right. I mean, the word social and, and you know what this is going to turn into someone's going to someone's going to pull like 14 seconds of this interview and put it out and say Jesperson trumpeting socialism from his podcast platform. Uh, but the reality is uh, the word itself, the root is social. And when you look at our values and upon, you know, the, the bedrock upon which we build our society, a lot of it is a tinge or flavor or inspired by or unabashedly socialism and i wish that we could and and there are there are words many words that have been weaponized across the political spectrum i mean gosh we're going to talk to a filmmaker about nazis literal and otherwise in about a you know 45 minutes time but but the language is so supercharged yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my mind is just boggling. Think about what's coming up in your show. Yeah, um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to mentally prepare for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're right. Uh, we want to be social. You're, we shouldn't weaponize these things. Yeah. And like everybody wants to win the lottery, but you shouldn't bet your life on it because most of us lose. Uh, playing the safe bet is not a bad way to get by. Um, and uh, that's why uh, socialism is taking a bit of a bad rap right up until the pandemic when it's the thing that seemed to make most, most of the countries who had strong social supports did very well with respect to the pandemic. It was the rugged individualists who, uh, you know, didn't do so well. We've got some amazing comments here, which is no surprise on our live chat. You're getting people to think about a million things. It's, it's just another form of your public service, doctor. Uh, I know that today's a big day for you and we've kept you longer than we asked you for. So so please do uh, here. Let me pump the tires of this Edify feature. You can see it on my screen, edifyedmonton.com. I wouldn't say it was innovation. It was just Commitment. Doctors redesign the ICU as COVID cases mount. You can read that at edifyedmonton.com. The feature there, the star of the piece, our guest, Dr. Darren Markland. Thanks for this, Doc. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Mentioning the live chat, I'm just dropping in here. So there's a whole bunch, Sarah. I know you've been keeping an eye on it. Uh, oh, I love this uh, from Michelle who says, Oh, RJ, I always wondered if the good Dr. Jesperson was your father. Yes. Uh, well, I guess depending on which one you talk about, Dr. Ruben Jesperson, who was a surgeon in Edmonton for many years, was my great uncle who inspired the career of my dad, Dr. Bruce Jesperson, who practiced down in Calgary up until, well, I guess about what was it a couple of years ago? I guess it's coming up quick. Time flies. Um, Scott says, you know, 475 G's, not even close to the economic one percent. Have a look at oil executive compensation if you want to see the one percent. Uh, I think technically. 475k a year would put you in the one percent but that's not the point the point is the point that kathy makes on our live chat where she says what they also don't say these politicians is that doctors pay for their clinics and run a business out of that money they're not taking it all home it would be the same thing as if somebody owned a restaurant and the restaurant generated two million dollars in revenue annually and you said look at this rich restaurant i'm hey listen first of all i'm not here playing the world's tiniest violin for physicians i'm not okay physicians make a earn a great living and they earn the money and as a matter of fact i think it's important that we compensate professionals especially professionals with very specialized skills in a way that ensures that we have the best and that we attract the best and that we keep the best i think it's a smart investment don't get me wrong, though. I'm not I'm not crying for physicians now. I'm just making the point that a restaurateur that generates two million dollars in revenue does not make two million dollars. They pay for the food. They pay for the space. They play. They pay for the staff. Right. And so a physician is taking home much less than they bill Alberta healthcare. That's an important perspective. And sometimes it needs to be stated because it's not always clearly and accurately stated. Troy says the Overton window has shifted. It's like a, a, a political spectrum. By the way, we once put in, in an interview request um, for, for the team, the think tank behind the Overton window. Actually, the gentleman that came up with it has since passed, but there's a think tank that kind of takes credit for it. Fascinating study. The Overton window, says Troy, has shifted so far right that anything to the left of hunting the poor for sport is considered socialist. That from Troy. I've never been called a communist so many times uh, than in this past year. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I want to talk to to our, our filmmaker, Daniel Ambrosio, coming up a little bit later on the show about words like Nazi, right? 
uh, that are being thrown around. I fear that the, the worst case scenario is that the words lose their power and that they lose their significance. But sometimes the shoe fits at the same time. Absolutely. I think I would argue that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you're when there's a rule or there's something that they feel is strict, then they, you know, imply or use yeah. terminology. It's like the Third Reich. Yeah. If, exactly. if, if you can't gather with a thousand people in your church, it's like the Third Reich. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, whoa, whoa. Cool your jets. <laughs> An immunization passport is like asking Jews to wear the gold star, you know, leading up to and during World War II, they will assert. Yeah. I mean, which which do we even have to state the obvious? Maybe it's important to state it that that's not only ludicrous, but completely offensive and, 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 and dancing on the graves of about 10 million people, including six million Jews. I mean, is it I think it's sometimes important we point that out. Two Beaver on the live chat says the climate crisis is very real and moving in exponential fashion. We must be aware and prepared. Emma says, yeah, low taxes, but what's the true cost? The whole idea of penny wise, pound foolish. Donna says, I'd rather pay taxes so we can have a healthy society. This for, for online chats and online forums. I don't know why we've been blessed to have a community like this. Nicole says, this is a real, that's a really nice guy. He makes total sense. <laughs> what? How, how are we all of a sudden getting like calm, reasonable, and uh, generous commentary on our lives. What, what, what's happening here? Well, I think there's been a community created. And what, one is, that, what is with these people? What is with these people? <laughs> I, to me, I really, truly believe that we put our money where our mouth is. So what do we value? And do we value health care, high quality health care? Do we value education? Do we value... <laughs> Any number of things. And if you if we do, then that's where I mean, I work for a living and I will invest my money what in what I value. Like that's why I'm working. Mm. Um and so to me, taxes, they're inevitable. Where where do the where do the tax dollars then go? I would I would hope that they would go to things that are highly valuable and are investments in in everyone. Donna says communist, socialist, snowflake, comrade. <laughs> I've heard them all. The Watcher says I have real contempt for people who use words like slave or Nazi yes. casually. That's a great point. Yes. It's a great point. Jillian says the overuse of the word Nazi drives me crazy. There's such ignorance. I should read that she also says Sarah's right. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> People are going to start accusing me of censorship if I don't read the full comment. I've got a tally chart here where yeah, that, I hear that, Sarah's that, right. That's right. Yeah, we're going we're, we're to have down come Jay Bigham's phenomenal paintings and up goes a whiteboard so you can keep score. <laughs> totally. Kaylin watching it from Vancouver this morning says, uh, wow, is Dr. Markland ever fantastic? That's the kind of high level interconnected thinking. That's what we need from politicians. She says I could listen all day. Well, hey, stick around for the next, you know, hour and a half or so. Great show to come. I appreciate this. Uh, from Lauren, who says, you know, empathy. I lost his comment here. So, Lauren, I'm, I'm going to have to freewheel based on what I what I remember you said. But he said, basically, empathy can be a blessing and a curse for healthcare workers. It's the, t the type of thing where you can be really, you know, you can be really impacted. But uh, Lauren, by the way, is a retired fire chief. So he comes at it from a position of lived experience. 
Um, you know, it can be a blessing and a curse. I, I can't imagine the emotion and the impact that that so many people face. Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Lauren, by the way, is the audience member that suggested we should get a tree in studio for Sarah to hug um, as, as she provides her commentary on on various environmental issues. Uh, that's exactly what the team at Eden Landscaping did. You can find out their amazing work there. She is hugging her beautiful cherry tree. And uh, her name is Sherry. Okay, well, so I wanted to ask you so because you had a personalized card that came with the tree. Yes, Uh, you don't you don't have to share the you know whatever if you'd like. I mean, we all want to read your mail, but (laughs) so so Sherry is the tree, not who the tree is from. Sherry's the tree. Yes, this is Sherry, a crimson passion cherry tree. We chose her because not only will she be beautiful, she will bear flowers for pollinators, she will provide food, safety, and nesting space for birds, and she will be a great size for a city-sized yard. There you go. Amazing. Sherry. (laughs) You you saw the email we got from Arden yesterday, by the way, who, who says, I was contentedly listening to Real Talk while, while working hard outdoors, and, and my mouth fell open as I heard you describe, Ryan, native trees as a little bit boring. So I, I thought I better circle back on this and clarify. At no point did the team at Eden Landscaping describe native trees as boring. It was, it was my characterization of the spirit of our conversation where they were describing how, well, this may not be a tree native to this part of the world. It could integrate nicely and create a little bit of diversity and a little pizzazz in your garden. I thought, you know what? If I'm speaking on behalf of a company, I better clarify. They're not describing the native trees as boring. That was me, the civilian. Are we clear? Way to go, Ryan. <laughs> LandscapeEdmonton.ca is where you can learn more about Eden Landscaping and the amazing work that they're doing. Well, it's Wednesday today, and that means that it is time for my Jasper moment. Starting today and for many Wednesdays to come, we are so excited to take you along with us collectively to the mountains. This is presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. You know, right now, a lot of people that are observing all the COVID regulations and doing everything that they can to get in some exercise, to get in some fresh air, are looking to golf. And when I think of Jasper personally, I think of golf. Let me take you there. Let me take you onto the famed course described as one of Canada's absolute best at Canada's number one rated golf resort this the fairmont jasper park lodge this this golf course is a bespoke creation of canada's premier golf course architect the name stanley thompson resonates around the world and as the legend goes when when stanley thompson was developing the blueprint for this incredible course he would walk the woods with a hatchet with his cane and with a bottle of gin it's kind of how we came up with real talk With 700 acres at his disposal, it took months before the renowned architect finally put pencil to paper. And the result, of course, if you've been there, you know, is an exquisitely crafted golf course that was and remains on every golfer's global bucket list. It's coming up on 100 years old. It opened back in 1925 after 50 teams of horses and 200 workers spent a full year picking rocks clearing boulders from the land can i show you present day sam can you call up my tweet this is this is one of my favorite tea boxes in the world this is 
the, the 14th hole. Everybody knows the 14th hole. If you've golfed here, it jumps across the perfectly clear glacial waters of Lac Beauvert. That's my buddy Laws on the tee box. And I'll give him credit. He put this one straight down the pipe. I'm going to say about 260 yards. Did he really? Right in the middle of the fairway. Like I said, I'm going to say <laughs> he put it right. <laughs> I've, let's just say I've left a few Pro V1s in Lac Beauvert. Let's just say that. Although the good news for me on that tee box is that I slice right. Okay. So it keeps me on the fairway. I can actually, I'll actually aim to the water. <laughs> Which like the pros like Talon Sweeney at the, the JPL will tell you, don't aim to compensate for your slice because then when you hit a good shot, you're in trouble. Right. Right. I try to learn this. This is why I'm not a golf pro. I just play my spice, my slice. Um, but this course, it, what sets it apart from a lot of new courses, if you know golf, you know that uh, if people, for example, that would criticize like a Bryson DeChambeau that say he's changing the game because he's just smashing it down the fairway and par fives are now, you know, realistically eagles and maybe even albatrosses. If these guys are, they're wrecking golf. Everybody's worried about golf. This track plays just under 6,700 yards, which means it can be completed by a whole bunch of different experience levels and many different playing styles, whether you hit it long, whether you putt short, every hole aligned with a phenomenal mountain vista. I'm mentally going back there right now. Let me just say this about that shot that I shared from the 14th tee box. This is all I can, this is how I can tell you about the connection I feel with this place and this golf course. That was right after I got fired. When I, like right after, when I need to clear my head, when I need to get somewhere that puts me in a positive frame of mind, when all hell is breaking loose and it seems like the world is on fire, this tee box is where I find my peace. So word is from Tal, he's the director of golf operations out at the Fairmont. We checked in with him and he says that the greens are fantastic right now, which will be a surprise to nobody. And that of course they're observing all COVID-19 protocols and leading in that department. It's important to them that they're able to keep Albertans and visitors golfing through the course of this. If you want to learn more about the My Jasper Memory Partnership, you can check out jasper.travel slash realtalk jasper.travel slash real talk and every wednesday join us here on the show for a my jasper memory i could talk about golf for three hours <laughs> i've just opened up the door and now all i want to talk about is golf interesting you are we going to get out and do like a real time you, you know what i envision like we can't do it now we can't do it yet mm -hmm. but i'm thinking like let me just plant the seed let me just plant the seed. Okay. I'm thinking real talk road trip. Ooh. Audience in. <gasps> right? Some form of partnership. I'm putting it on the record so the team at Tourism Jasper has to cooperate with us. I don't know when it's going to be. It's going to be back when we can all gather. So it's a little bit of time from now. Everybody get those needles in your arms. I'm talking about the vaccines. And uh, I'm thinking we hit the highway. I'm thinking we do the show live out there. Maybe for like one or two or five. I don't know. Well, we might as well make it a week. Maybe we do it. Maybe do like a the the real talk golf tournament. Who's so in? That. Who's in? Well, you are hitting the golf balls. I will be in Jasper Park Lodge. Yes, petting the dog. Yes, because they have an like they do a hotel dog. They do have a hotel dog. <laughs> the dog house is like I'm like I I've, I've stayed in hostels smaller <laughs> yeah. than the dog house in the lobby at the Fairmont Jasper Park yeah. Lodge. Yeah. Right. People are saying I, it's blowing people's minds that, that I'm a righty. They can't believe I'm a right. A right. You know, just, you know, Nicole wonders, maybe we could do a real talk rodeo. 
<laughs> yes. That could be a, the answer is yes. It'd be interesting timing. It'd be interesting timing. And, and we've got some people... Um, Dan says, Ryan, really? You find peace on that tee box? Really? You find peace on the 14th? Dan says, I mean, it's beautiful, but I can almost guarantee I'm taking a drop on the other side of the water. Yeah, Dan, I, I find my peace before I hit my drive. All right. And then I go right back to elevated blood pressure. And uh, but the, the JPL is the kind of course where I mean, I, I golf a little bit differently than some. Right. Mm. They're, they're those that are going to like the, the low handicappers that are going to come in. They're going to want to shoot a 71 or they're going to want to like, you know, shoot for a personal best at the JPL. And, I, and I'm always I'm the guy that's like if I it's gone lost. I'm just like still in Jasper. <laughs> Fire up a cigar. Drop a ball. You know, the 19th mulligan of the round. Mm-hmm, yeah. Come mm-hmm. in. Shot an 81 boys. Not bad with 19 mulligans and 12 lost balls. So that's that's kind of where we go. Um, but yeah, people are talking about where it clears your head. You can use the hashtag my Jasper and the hashtag real talk RJ if you want to connect us. And and ultimately what we'd love to do with the team at Tourism Jasper as well is tell your Jasper memories. And so we're going to be rolling out some cool contesting and promotions. And this is just week number one. And, and we're really, really excited about it. Before we get into this next interview, I also wanted to uh, take a moment um, to, to uh, uh, Real Talkers along with me uh, as we enjoy a little surprise um, for, for the duo that, that keeps this show running and that keeps this show uh, what it is. Uh, Sarah Hoyles and Samuel G. Brooks, uh, you know that our family is really proud to do our grocery shopping at Friesen Brothers. And last night, uh, Carrie, my lovely wife and fantastic partner in crime, was out at the Friesen Brothers in South Edmonton, the, the Rabbit Hill location. And uh, I'm just going to throw my mask on here for a second because I'm going to, uh, as a matter of fact, put put something pretty special in front of these two. So, so real talkers, um, I I talk all the time about these sourdough cinnamon buns, but like they, they kind of more speak for themselves. Um, and so, if you'll pardon me just for a second, uh, Sarah Hoyles, your first impression upon seeing it? Oh my goodness, this looks flipping delicious! Wow. All right, Sam, so you can take whatever camera you want, whether it's Sarah's or yours, but uh, I thought we could get like a... I mean, the opportunity here for a cinnamon bun cam would be great. <laughs> Sam, you want to hold your uh, cinnamon bun up to a camera there? You guys want to... These Look are the, at this these are the, like These are... This is no joke here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> these sourdough cinnamon buns, like, unbelievable. Yeah. I even brought cutlery. I was going to say, I was like, how is... There you go. Maybe I can put... Sam, you can come grab this when you can. Um, so, I mean, they kind of speak for themselves. I'll just, I'll just remind you that you can get your hands on these sourdough cinnamon buns. Can you put it in front? Of, I just want it for the, for the folks at home. I'm just, I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm just saying, if you live in any one of the 15 Alberta communities where there's a Friesen Brothers, an amazing save by Sarah Hoyles. That was like, we, we saw it. We saw athlete Sarah there. You, you sure did. It was like a cat. That was just wow. Are well, you a, do you play baseball, softball, football? Are you, are you like a, a, you know, are you good with hand-eye? Yeah, I mean, a bit of a jock. Bit, bit of, of a jock, jock over that here. Was, that was a great save. That would have been tragic, let's that, be honest. You would have seen me cry on camera. <laughs> Friesen Brothers 15 Alberta locations for more than 65 years. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Uh, all right. People are people are talking. I mean, this is the time of the season. You know, when I'm when I'm talking to you about 
you know, where people are going or when we're getting emails from folks, you reflect that, that you've, you've been looking forward to an opportunity to get outside, to get into the parks. A lot of people have been home for a long time. A lot of people have been isolating. Fresh air has, has been an opportunity that's maybe been limited for a lot of folks. And, and that's why I think uh, as we alluded to earlier, people connect with their parks in a very special way. I don't have to tell you that Alberta is going to start charging a user fee coming up uh, pretty quickly. It goes into effect June 1st, as a matter of fact. So what is that? Three weeks from now ish. Um, 90 bucks a year, 15 bucks a day. The Alberta government announcing what they're calling a conservation fee for access to the Kananaskis Provincial Park. Philip Turnbull is an uh, outdoor adventure and tra- uh, travel blogger. He writes at zentravelers.com and he's been kind enough to join us this morning. I love it. You, you, you come up on the camera and you've already got a smile from ear to ear. Is, <laughs> is, is that what happens to you when we start talking about heading to the parks? It's what happens to me. Absolutely, but I'm uh, I'm a little upset that you didn't send me a, a cinnamon bun. <laughs> I, knew you, I knew you were going to say that. And the worst part about it, Philip, in any other year, I mean, we built this studio to accommodate guests, and uh, and and in any other year, you would be sitting here with me with with a with a warmed cinnamon bun in front of you. So I apologize, and you've got one in the bank, my man. Um, <laughs> this 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 story about user fees it's it's uh, it's been. How do I characterize this? Some people automatically think it's an absolutely terrible idea. Um, And I think it's fair to say, to be objective, those same folks might also acknowledge that they believe that pretty much everything that this government has done is a terrible idea. In other words, they don't have to dig into the details. They hate the premise of it. They hate who's doing it. And they have suspicions around it. Then there are folks I'm hearing from that that say, you know what, it might not be a bad idea if it goes into sustainability initiatives, if it allows us to keep the parks looking good, and if it allows us to keep from closing parks or selling parks, I don't mind it. And then you have folks that are saying we should have more user fees. I don't use the park. I shouldn't pay for it. Where do you land on that spectrum? Uh, I would say somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, I definitely think there's a lot of things that this government has gotten wrong, um, but I'm not so you know, partisan that, you know, that, that I would look at it and say, you know, we absolutely shouldn't have, you know, user fees for parks. Um, you know, I can see an argument for it. Um, but when you actually dig into it, um, you know, unfortunately, that's not really the reality here. Um, you know, our parks, you know, definitely need funding and, you know, maybe a user fee is a way to look uh, to raise those funds. Um, but, you know, when you look into it, despite the name, uh, the funds are not actually going to conservation. OK, so take us into this, because this is a, a significant and important detail. Uh, what do we need to know? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, to start, uh, you know, with the name uh, conservation pass, that's what you'd think. Right. Um, so it, the first big thing is, you know, the exclusion of the McLean Creek area. Um, you know, if we're truly looking for conservation in Kananaskis, which is absolutely important, um, and our parks need the funding for that, um, you know, why would McLean Creek be ex- excluded? Um, you know, I don't need to tell you that uh, McLean Creek is a popular area for, you know, off-highway vehicles. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody knows that that has, you know, a big impact on the environment and on the wildlife in the area. Um, and in fact, Alberta Parks did a study back in uh, December 2019 um, where they looked uh, specifically at off-highway vehicle use. Um, and, you know, they were able to confirm that, you know, that it does have a huge impact you know, on the on the water and the sediment in, in the region, you know, as well as the wildlife. 
Um, so, you know, that's kind of the first thing, you know, when you look at it, you know, if it's about conservation, you know, why is one of the areas that um, needs it the most um, excluded? So do you, uh, sorry, go ahead, continue, please. Uh, yeah. And then when you look at the money, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't add up either. Uh, so Jason Nixon said that this uh, conservation pass is going to raise $15 million, um, you know, which is, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, the Alberta budget. Um, but, you know, uh, so in 2019, uh, the Alberta government cut $24 million from the parks budget. Um, and this year you can see that the parks operating budget goes up $5 million. Uh, so, you know, I'm no mathematician, but, uh, um, I, I think there's a missing $10 million there and sure some of that's going to capital projects, um, but not all of it. Um, so if the funding was, you know, truly going to Kananaskis, you know, in terms of, you know, providing better services and, um, increasing, uh, conservation, um, you know, I could see a good argument for, uh, you know, for this pass and for paying the fee. Um, but it seems like most of the funding is just going to general revenue. Uh, and actually, when you look at the Alberta Parks budget, um, it's even with the conservation pass, it's lower than it was uh, just in 2018 and 2019. Do you, uh, with regards to McLean Creek, um, and and I make no bones about it. I, I'm, I'm not going to hide it. There's no reason to hide it. I've been going to McLean Creek for 25 years. I am an off-road enthusiast. It's all over my Instagram. People can see that. I will acknowledge uh, in, in the spirit of no bullshit uh, that there are a lot of problems out at McLean Creek. Um, there's, there, there's a lot of uh, environmental impact that could be prevented. Um, there's a lot of impaired driving. Obviously, police enforcement has ramped up. Anybody that's been out there in, in past years and now is familiar with it knows that there's way more rcmp than there used to be most people see that as a positive check stops going in and out but you're right it's a bit of a free-for-all out there it's crown land it's exempted from the park fee do you think that there is some value in providing spaces like that where where people have all and, and don't get me wrong i'm not talking about demolishing riparian zones i'm not talking about severely impacting <laughs> native fish species i'm not talking about being a jerk that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about responsible, ethical off-roading, people that go in there as part of sustainability initiatives and, and, and outdoor enthusiast clubs that actually go in and clean the areas and, 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 and do their best to, to mitigate or repair some of the damage. That does happen. I've, I've been part of it. I've seen it in action. Do you think that there is value in having zones or areas that are set aside for that? So the people that love the thousands of Albertans that love dirt bikes and quads and side by sides and Jeeps and big mud boggers can get out with their families and pursue their interests. Or is, is this the type of thing that that you'd like to see phased out entirely? Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100 percent against, you know, off roading. Um, you know, lots of people enjoy it. You know, I know that you've talked about it in the past on the show. Um so, yeah, I mean, people need those places, but unfortunately, you know, the individuals that are um, not respecting the environment when they do that, you know, they have a disproportionate impact um, on the area. Um, and, you know, it just doesn't add up that this area is excluded from the conservation pass. Um, I know that, you know, they were, they've been talking about adding you know, potentially a $30 fee, um, but still, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You know, why is it $90 to go have a picnic at, um, you know, at Elbow Falls 
um, and then it's only thirty dollars to you know, to go off roading in McLean Creek. Um, so yeah, uh, you know the individuals that are doing it responsibly, um, you know, more power to them. You know, unfortunately, that's not the case you know, with everyone, um, and you know that small percentage you know ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a fair comment. I posted this back in 2019. This was May long weekend in 2019. And I posted a photo. This is my rig and we're up there having a little bit of fun in McLean. And I quoted John Muir. Everybody needs beauty as well as bread places to play in and pray in where nature may heal and give strength to body and soul. And I remember a gal wrote in and said, how dare you? How dare you invoke John Muir as you off-road through the Kananaskis? And I realized it's, yeah, not everybody sees eye to eye on this type of thing. And I don't take other perspectives lightly. Let's talk about the timing of this. June 1st, the fees come in. Uh, for a lot of families, there, there's yep. existing plans. Um, and, and, and for some people, we both know that some people aren't going to notice 90 bucks out of the checking account. They won't even notice it's gone. Some people wouldn't notice nine grand out of their checking account for other people, this is a significant interruption of the plan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the timing just seems like it was something that they came up on the, you know, on the back of a napkin and said, okay, let's implement this. Um, you know, announcing it, you know, it, they didn't even announce it. Um, I think Emma Graney uh, first wrote about it in the Globe and Mail. Um, so that was the first that we heard about it. Uh, it wasn't in the budget. Um, and, you know, in the budget, they did talk about increasing uh, some camping fees. Um, so, so people were aware of that, um, but, you know, people have made plans. Um, so if you're going on a, you know, backpacking trip and, you know, uh, in Kananaskis and you're going to be out there for multiple nights, well, now that's going to cost you $90 more, um, you know, despite the fact that you've already booked your campsites, you know, expecting what it will, you know, it to be a certain price. Um, they also talked about, you know, an exclusion for uh, low-income people uh, and for um, and for Indigenous uh, peoples, which is, you know, that's obviously important. Um, but, you know, when you actually look at the details, uh, it's kind of sparse on what that uh, really looks like. Um, there's the only exclusion that I can see on the Conservation Pass website is for, uh, for people on AISH, um, and there's nothing else for uh, low-income people. Um, so again, you know, implementing it at the end of April, um, going live in June, um, you know, we're still figuring out the details and what it actually looks like. Philip, just to clarify, did you say that the only people, I didn't know this, the only people that are exempted from paying the, the pass or the fee are ACE recipients. That's it. ACE recipients and indigenous peoples. Yeah. Uh, so Nixon, uh, Jason Nixon uh, said that there was going to be an exemption for low income people. But when you look on, you know, I think it's Alberta.ca slash Kananaskis Conservation Pass. Um, all it mentions is Asian indigenous peoples. Kim says I've, I've been a freak. <laughs> Kim says I've been a frequent all caps frequent Kananaskis visitor since I was born. She says 50 years of hiking, camping, visiting, working in the Kananaskis. She says I've been blessed. A user fee is fine if it goes back to the parks, but it won't. Randy, meantime, says the fee is just a carbon tax disguised. So the government that said no carbon tax in Alberta now has three carbon taxes. You remember, I mean, one of one of the huge criticisms. I mean, this is just a fact. Um, facts are inconvenient for politicians. Uh, but one of the biggest protests around Rachel Notley's carbon tax was that a significant part of it went back into general revenues. Conservatives heads were exploding. Um, and now you're telling yep. me that the exact same thing is, is happening here. 
so where do you figure this goes? Like, I mean, even with regards to what do you call it? Like uh, population management or, or visitor management? Like I was blown away. Weren't you to hear that? Uh, did they say that it's four million? Banff saw four million visitors annually last year, and the Kananaskis saw five. five. Was, that yeah. knocked my socks off. That more people. Oh. Did, were you surprised by that or no? Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a big number. I wasn't entirely surprised. We've seen that happening, you know, over the past years, and you know, especially last year, we definitely, you know, saw parking lots were full. Um, you know, there were a lot of new uh, new users in Kananaskis. Um, you know, so I'm not denying that overuse is uh, is a problem in Kananaskis. You know, the area has been being loved to death in some ways, um, but uh, you know, it, it, there might have been a little bit of something going on in 2020. Uh, I don't know. It was coronavirus pandemic. You know, maybe you heard about it. Um, it you know, it, I think cherry picking uh, one single year where nobody could travel uh, internationally and everybody was looking for something to do outside, um, you know, probably isn't the fairest comparison. Um, you know, but that said, uh, usage is definitely going up uh, in Kananaskis and, you know, and that's a problem. Um, but uh, singling out Kananaskis for the conservation pass um, isn't really the solution to, to solving that problem. Uh, there's a huge demand for people to, you know, to get outdoors and explore nature. Um, and we're just going to see, you know, instead of, you know, going to Kananaskis, people are going to go to other areas uh, that might not have the resources or the setup to handle that same number of users. Uh, BC is seeing exactly that. They implemented a, uh, um, not a user fee, uh, but a registration system for six of their most popular uh, provincial parks. Um, and instead of going to those uh, specific uh, six parks, you know, people are going out further, uh, going to different areas uh, that, you know, that don't have the resources. You know, maybe they're going out, um, you know, further into the backcountry and, you know, uh, needing to get rescued. Um, so singling out, you know, a single area, uh, the demand is still going to be there and people are going to find a way to get outdoors. Uh, so that doesn't make sense in my mind either. Well, it's, it's a good point here from some random guy on our live chat. Uh, is his name um, <laughs> says if you charge. Well, I better read the full comment. Sarah was right on the first day she joined. It's going like, to Sarah was right. Sarah was right. If you charge for every site, says some random guy, if you charge for every site except McLean Creek, then everyone will go to McLean Creek. That's free market, baby, says some random guy. So what would you like to see happen here? I don't think anybody is going to acknowledge that there's there's a budgetary. Um, what do I say? How do I put this? There are there are there are there are tells in the provincial budget. There are tells in what this government will spend public dollars on and what it'll finance and what it will charge the public to finance. And here yeah. it's a park fee to support the parks. Um, whereas, you know, we're, we're subsidizing advocacy for the traditional oil and gas industry out of our own pocket. So, I mean, there's an example of priorities. What do you think would be a smart move? What would you like to see the government doing in the spirit of protecting the parks and sustainability across the board, fiscally, environmentally and otherwise? I mean, to start with, you know, funding the parks properly. Um, but, you know, if I was in charge and I had to keep this conservation pass, you know, a couple quick things that would make a huge difference in my mind. You know, it should apply to all parks in Alberta, um, not just Kananaskis. Um, the resources are going to go to the entire province. Uh, so um, so it should be, you know, kind of spread out across all parks. That's consistent with what 
um, what other provinces that have um, a provincial park fee do as well. Um, you know, we need to look at the low income exemption. Um, you know, like we talked about, uh, it, it excludes AISH, but the details on, you know, the rest of the low income exemption, you know, aren't there. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that uh, people have access to Kananaskis. Um, you know, that's, you know, it's a Albertan's backyard. Uh, we love it. Uh, so, um, you know, we want to make sure that people uh, are able to access it regardless of their, um, of their income. You know, maybe a more reasonable fee. Um, but I think most importantly, uh, transparency uh, on where the funding goes is is going to be most important here. Um, you know, I, I said at the top that I'm not 100% against uh, paying for uh, for backcountry usage, um, but we need to know that the funding is actually going to parks, um, that it's going to conservation, that it's going to um, increasing services um, in the areas. Um, and then another consideration is that you know, uh, you know, a lot of uh, trail um, or a lot of volunteer organizations that work with conservation and trail maintenance, um, you know, those are volunteer driven and donation driven. Um, you know, so some of the funding should probably go to organizations like that as well, um, because people aren't going to donate, um, you know, if they're already paying $90 yeah, but, to yeah, go to the park. <laughs> sure, sure. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not happening. <laughs> Jason Kenny should fund environmental activism groups. Like, really? Like, you and I yeah. both know that there's not a chance in hell of that happening. I, I do appreciate you putting it in front of us, um, but we both know that that's not happening. I don't mean to be pessimistic. I'm just being realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, speaking of pessimism, you know, the easiest solution here is just cut the war room and give the funding to the parks. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the war room is double what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so thirty million dollars to parks. Uh, you know, I, I'm in. Yeah, I know. But if you cancel the war room, how are you going to pay your friends? Right? It's tough because you lose your slush fund. It's tough. Uh, Philip, you and your wife do an absolutely amazing job at ZenTravelers.com. Um, you can catch his feature back on on May six, just uh, coming up on a week ago uh, again alberta's new kananaskis conservation pass and i love this by the way you're camping on maline lake feature we spent some time talking about jasper and uh and getting out there camping on maline lake just an absolutely incredible experience as well philip i really enjoyed talking to you any excuse to to mentally get outdoors we take it thanks for this absolutely thanks so much for having me yeah you bet that's uh philip turble i i got all the time in the world for people whose whose passion extends into advocacy and and he does a great job there on his site encourage you to check it out wanted to give a shout out speaking of getting out doors if your summer is going to include a road trip and you're going to be pulling a boat you're going to be pulling a trailer maybe the first one ever whole bunch of our friends have gotten in from from the used game a couple of them so thrilled to find a couple hidden gems for 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 like just a few grand and they're gonna sarah they're gonna do the rent they're gonna renovate the inside of the trailer themselves and 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 then our neighbor brand spanking new like i'm sitting there looking at his like whoo wee you need something to pull it with and ram trucks have been trusted by canadians for years and years the three time car uh motor trend truck of the year uh right now they're tough to find as a matter of fact there's been a real run on pickups the three quarter tons the one tons that allow you to pull whatever you're pulling without a second thought the best selection in alberta remains at the two dealerships in partnership st albert and sherwood dodge when you want to talk ram you want to talk to the teams at st albert and sherwood Dodge, you can link to them on our website under the sponsors tab at Ryan Jesperson. 
Com. Also, a big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They know that the other Dairy Queen owners are not happy with them because they are offering right now for the rest of May peanut buster parfaits for $1.99. Now, don't trust my exact math, but that's coming up on like 65% off. That's like a major price slash for the month of May only. The Peanut Buster Parfait. Let me just read this. Layers of creamy vanilla soft serve, rich hot fudge, and peanuts topped off with Dairy Queen's trademark curl and, of course, the red spoon. $1.99 Peanut Buster Parfaits at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Samuel Brooks, I can tell this is resonating I, I with just, you. Well, I mean, uh, like, uh, I, I, among many other people, just enjoy the sheer decadence that is the Peanut Buster Parfait. I'm a little worried about Dairy Queens of uh, Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park because they're not going to make any money off of those. They're basically giving them away. I mean, at the peek behind the curtain here, they've not told me this, but I have to assume this is what would qualify as a loss leader. Yeah, that makes sense. You know? So, like, while you're there, you know, load up on like 11 orders of french fries onion rings a, a couple of the big off the dq grill i mean a couple of, like basically what i'm saying is go in there and spend about 90 dollars but save five bucks or so on the peanut buster parfait i, I just i want to talk about that for the rest of the day we could do it i really want to get some like sensual music while you read about the peanut buster parfait oh is that right just the way that you were you know talking about the red spoon sam what about what if we i, I know i'm putting you on the spot here but, but do you think you could load up the alternative music for kubi energy's positive reflections the one that we did not use that's the opposite of no, sensual but music. no yeah hey, i'm a professional communicator you just you work with me here for all a second right, you guys right, can, right, can you please right. give me the bed here's what we're talking about all right uh, we'll get <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Layers of creamy vanilla soft serve with that rich hot fudge and peanuts topped off with Dairy Queen's trademark curl. And of course, the red spoon. It's the peanut buster parfait for $1.99 at the Dairy Queen's of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. How's that? Is that something like that? We could... Get down on I, it, like no. It, I, I mean, you really sold it. You really like you just you you gave your all. I put my uh, the, the ten out of ten on the effort. Capital oh. capital E for effort. E. W, yeah. Okay, thank you. Let's just, I, let's stop the feedback there. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm just gonna stop you there. I don't know if my confidence can take the hit. Can we just if if there's another let's just say there's another day that you're gonna do yeah talking about the peanut butter properly. Could we try the central music? We could. Uh, I I mean I, I wouldn't be against it. Just I wouldn't be against. Can it. I you mean, humor me? I'm thinking. I'm thinking that when I get to rich, hot, fudge, exactly. it's gonna really, it's gonna really go to a different level. Jonathan wrote in to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Sometimes you've just got a hard segue out. You've just got to turn the page. Speaking of the trademark curl, Jonathan, no. He was he was paying attention to yesterday's show. We were talking about public transit. It was a fantastic conversation and uh, public transit across Canada. Really enjoyed it. Great booking by Sarah. And uh, he says transit in cities, says Jonathan. Everybody moans and complains, you know, that transit's a joke or that it doesn't reach everybody. Uh, people in the suburbs complain that they have no regular buses to that. I say too bad. 
urban sprawl has caused so many issues and this is one of them people want to live in the burbs for like whatever reason uh prices of homes it's quieter they're away from the hustle and bustle uh but people need to do their homework and weigh the pros and cons the pros you're, you're quiet uh you're you're close to I, I don't know what suburb is quiet but I, I get what he's saying but young family anyway i digress uh back to jonathan uh, you're close to amenity hubs like grocery stores and things like that but one of the cons is lack of access to transit and longer commute times you can't can't have everything. He says, my, my wife and I moved into a certain area uh, of town because of its access to transit and its proximity to all the things that we value. We're close to our family. We're close to pedestrian shopping areas. We're close to downtown. We made the choice knowing it would cost a bit more, but we did our homework. Spreading out resources doesn't help. We need to build up, not out. And people can't have their cake and eat it, too. You shouldn't live in the burbs if you want transit. I, dis- I kind of disagree here, but I'm going to keep reading the email. You shouldn't live in the burbs if you want transit, just like you shouldn't live in the city center if you want quiet. He says, I recognize this sounds more like trash talk. and It's too reasonable for trash talk. He says, but people need to understand it's a choice to live where they live and they need to live with everything that comes with it. Good and not so good. That from Jonathan. Your thoughts? Uh, hmm. I mean, I, I think it's important to, yeah, live close to what you love. So I, I value parks and I value um, amenities. Uh, I value community. So I want to be in and amongst folks. Um, I don't want, although, you know, I, my mom grew up on a farm and I spent every summer out, out on a farm with one of my aunts and uncles. So, and yeah, I don't know if I if I agree with the premise which you pointed out that suburbs are quiet, cities are noisy. I like I can un- I can understand people saying, you know, a lot of people will say uh, you know, the, the 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 suburban sprawl is a strain on a city because you've got to expand uh, emergency services, you got to build new cop shops, you got to build new fire halls. Roads. Ultimately, you've got to yeah, roads, obviously sewer expansion, hospitals, Power, like the whole 9 yeah. yards, right? The whole 9 yards. And you and you've got to expand transit as well. At the same time, um, you know, a neighborhood like we live in where where there's neighborhood rejuvenation or renewal happening because there's houses that are 110 years old, um, you know, that also costs money. Right. And some of it is, is paid for by us. We got new street lamps. We got new sidewalks, but we paid for it as part of a levy. Um, you can't opt out. Everybody paid into it. Um, but things like bigger things like like overhauling sewer infrastructure. Um, that's also a cost on a city. So you, you could make those arguments. People talk about, you know, for example, schools in heritage neighborhoods. They see enrollment dwindling for whatever reason, whether the neighborhood is cost prohibitive for young families or whether young families prioritize the suburbs like Jonathan wrote about. Um, and then people will talk about allocating resources and we're building new schools while we're closing old ones and it doesn't make sense. And you can really open a, a whole bunch of different conversations on this. Sam, I don't know. It seemed to me I was, I was seeing, I saw your body language out of the corner of my eye that, that it seemed to resonate with you a little bit where he said, if you want to live in the suburbs, don't expect transit. I, I say this because because I, I, I grew up with that reality. Um, you know, I grew up in like older Riverbend to part of the city and, and transit sucks out there and it still sucks out there. We just did the bus network redesign and it's actually less serviced in that area. But I also think of it as being this sort of... Um, I also have vivid memories of getting on a bus and being on this bus for an hour and there's three people on it. Yeah. And and it's it's sort of hard to reconcile that because there are scarce resources at play here. Um, I, I think that there's a couple just sort of like general things that that 
make the problem worse. One of which is the idea of uh, you know, suburbs, particularly areas that are that part of the city municipality, but just sort of on the outlying areas. Uh, they tend not to be built in grids. They tend to be built in cul-de-sacs with windy streets all over the place. And, you know, I remember from my parents' house to the bus stop, well, you know, as the crow flies, it was probably about 200 meters. But in reality, you had to walk about a kilometer to get there. Um, <clears throat> so I think that there's, you know, there's, we need to rethink the way that we make these communities because uh, an area that has those winding streets like that, that's a traffic calming measure. That's assuming everybody drives. So let's make the neighborhood in a way where people are forced to slow down and 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 keep the neighborhood safe. That's sort of why districts are designed like that, yeah, right? James Wilt yesterday I thought it was interesting. He's, he's sort of, I don't want to speak for him, um, but boy, was he impressive. Uh, yes. His commentary on public transit and, and city design and all these types of things. But he's inherently, you get the sense, I don't, I'm not speaking for him, but he's inherently against or concerned about the idea of microtransit mm -hmm. and the idea of integrating things like like ride shares or, or, or whatever you call them, ride services like Uber or whatever, uh, in, in partnership with transit infrastructure. I'm not sure I feel the same way about that. I think that, uh, and I'm not sure I'm an advocate for it either. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, I mean, I think there needs to be a public element to public transit. But I'm also on the record that I'm not the type of person that's 100% inherently against uh, uh, different forms of healthcare delivery. I'm not inherently against private schools. Um, Sarah Hoyles is just blood pressure rising, but hey, man, you applied to work on this show, um, not the other way around. <laughs> I'm, but in all seriousness, ding, ding, no, dong. but, but, I, but that's, that's a position that I take that I understand is not popular with people. That's how I'm wired. I don't see a real, I can see some concerns that would need to be addressed, but I don't inherently have a problem with investigating different ways of service delivery, especially if it can be more cost efficient for something that's publicly subsidized. I think public subsidies are important, but I think we need to be good stewards of that money. And that, in my mind, needs to involve being open-minded on exploring other methods of delivery. Absolutely. I don't want to... Yeah. I'm not of the mindset that it's like, well, we've always done it this way, so we need to always do it this way. Um, so I, to me, that's... I don't want to come across as that. Like, we need to just stick with what yeah. we have. I don't think you do come across that way. Phew. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm with the ride share idea. I mean, my concern is looking at, and maybe this is a stretch, but looking at, um, privatized healthcare and looking at, I mean, something that happened in Canada and is very much top of mind, you know, seniors facilities when they're privatized, where is the accountability and the ability to, you know, make sure that everyone gets a fair shake. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's who can afford it as opposed to is it available? Yeah. For yeah. everyone. And these are important conversations. hundred percent. Doug says we live in the suburbs because it's affordable for us. And there's right. a lot of other families with young kids and parks and schools. And Doug says we don't expect to have good transit service. Uh, I don't blame people, especially people with young family, whatever. It doesn't matter what your circumstance is. But if it's going to if a single detached home with a backyard in the city center is going to going to cost, I mean, it depends, right? We have we have audience members in Vancouver, <laughs> a single detached home with a backyard close to the city center is three million dollars. Right. In, in, in Calgary, it might, it might be seven hundred and fifty in Toronto. Yeah. It might be a mill. Um, but then it, you start to talk in the suburbs and those prices can literally cut in half or cut by 40 percent. And you don't blame people for looking for that. And, and, and there are these trade offs. Right. Arnold Palmer says, how can you integrate ride shares to transit? Says they're absurdly costly and says, Ryan, you also said you don't take transit. Uh, 
and then and then he goes on to say leave public transit public fair uh but maybe you know i mean if we go back one of the reasons i don't take transit is because it's not convenient and it doesn't make sense for me personally to take transit um and another thing is uh you know leave public transit public sure and the best way to ensure that you are able to leave it public is with public support and the best way to maintain public support is to prove that you're spending the money wisely and i just think that there needs to be those conversations this is like one of a million stories that we're keeping an eye on sarah what else are we following this morning i know you got a few things right at the top of your list yeah i the the biggest one i think right now well there's so many but the one that's like popping off right now is Liz Cheney. Uh, yeah. She's with the Republican Party. She's just been voted out of her position of leadership in that party. So she it was a closed door meeting. So and we don't know the ballots were uh, you weren't able to see who cast what. But this morning, House uh, Republicans took a vote to remove Cheney from her position. The, the, the actual position is Republican conference chair. So she's she's out. It, well, and, and described as a career threatening move. Um, one of the things pretty interesting, though, this is after she repeatedly rebuked former President Donald Trump for his, his false claims of election yeah. fraud and his role in inciting the January 6th Capitol attack. I would suspect that Representative Cheney uh, out of Wyoming is probably going to at least be looking in the mirror right now and saying, well, I'm pretty sure that at least I'll wind up on the right side of history on this one. And that's precisely what she said. She's yeah. like, I'm I'm this is a hill to die on. Yeah. I am willing to be. Uh, like long term big picture I'm willing to let go of my because if this is the way the party is going the funny thing is though is because she did vote to impeach as well um, the funny thing is is that she is not anywhere close to center she is very conservative sure she is the daughter of Dick Cheney yeah and she holds very like several of well she She's in, she aligns with her father. She, she's a prominent Republican. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I guess the, the person that they're looking at potentially replacing her with is less conservative, like on the spectrum. So it's just, it's a wild, but she, yeah, anyways. The reinvention uh, or the, the restructuring or the same old thing with the Republican Party is going to be fascinating to watch. Or, or if you didn't catch our conversation with the other Jason Kenny the other day you're going to want to make sure you watch it he talks about it. he describes himself as a pre-Trump Republican and uh, from his home in Richmond Virginia he talked to us about where the where he sees the Republican Party yeah. going and 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 those that are still loyal to Donald Trump who of course what did he get 74 million votes or something like that um, it's it's not like it's not like they got walloped uh, 74 million votes for Trump now Jason and I talked about that how he acknowledged that a lot of those are just people that aren't going to vote Democrat so they're going to vote Republican they're going to yeah. plug their nose and vote uh, but at the same time, it'll be fascinating to watch. Uh, this is a great time to remind you that that our friends at uh, Grand Dog Essentials are delivering every single week uh, quality raw dog food to their customers in Calgary, in Edmonton, and across central Alberta. Customers that have checked out granddog.ca. I hope you're using the promo code REALTALK to get 10% knocked off your first time order. Sarah's pup, Ranger, right? You betcha. Ours, Moses and Monroe, they're all on Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food, and we see the returns every single day in their digestive health, in the quality of their coats. Monroe, our black lab, is a showstopper. Her coat has never looked so good. A showstopper. 
We'd, we'd show our dogs, but I, I just, I, I don't, I don't know if either I or the dogs could behave well enough to be right. a part of, part of that thing. But she's, she, she, she's a showstopper nonetheless. And that's because we consult with the team at Grand Dog. Monroe especially has some unique nutritional needs and they've been able to answer our questions and, and basically prescribe the best raw diet possible. We trust Grand Dog and you can too. They're a great friend of this show, Real Talk, and you can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We're also very proud you know at real talk to be the presenting sponsor of the global visions film series at this year's northwest fest international documentary festival now it may not be happening at metro cinema this year but the show does go on as we've been telling you you can watch more than 40 feature films plus 40 short films anywhere up until may 16th that's when the festival wraps shows including hail to the deadites that's a love letter to fans of evil dead made by evil dead fans uh, exploring the love affair with sam raimi's iconic horror franchise or, or or what about not going quietly the emotional story of rising young political star ad barkin's devastating als diagnosis and his fight for american health care reform and then, of course, there's White Noise, the definitive explosive chronicle of the rise of the alt-right as told by its most high-profile figures. You can learn more about all the films and buy your tickets right now at northwestfest.ca. I don't know what to expect uh, in this conversation. I, I have been anticipating. I have so many questions for our next guest. He's the filmmaker behind white noise it's daniel lombroso's debut feature film based on four years of reporting inside the alt-right it's the atlantic's first feature documentary before we meet daniel and welcome him to the show here is a scene from white noise i'm going to introduce the man himself our good friend and spokesperson for white people everywhere mr richard spencer thank you in the United States, and I'm referring to white people, white men in particular. And you all know that. You all, I'm, you all think this country is racist, right? So Mr. Spencer, you have a right to free speech, but you don't have the right to incite violence. I, I get it. You don't directly say kill black people, kill Jews, whatever, but your followers seem to take the idea of a white-only ethnostate to heart, and they are the ones going out and committing violent acts in your name and in the name of your movement. So name a single. Is, my question is, how do you respond? to people who feel that you should take responsibility for the actions of others, that your words... What are you referring to? Name a single incident in which some alt-rightist went out and murdered someone. Charlottesville, you organized no. that rally. People came I'm with riot gear and someone died. And that was under the name of your movement. No, How do you absolutely. not take responsibility for the actions of those people? Absolutely not. What exactly happened with the death of the fire remains unclear.
Daniel Lombroso is the director of White Noise, joining us live this morning on Real Talk. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I literally have chills, and that is the fourth time I've watched that scene. The fourth time I've seen it. I can't even imagine what this filmmaking experience was like for you. How did this first get started? So I was one of the first reporters in the United States to start covering the alt-right. At the time, the group was not being taken seriously. They were seen as kind of a new, edgy, fun kind of conservatism. You know, they were young and very internet savvy. You might remember Milo Yiannopoulos and some of the names that were popular at the time. You know, I was a bit younger in the Atlantic's newsroom. I'm also Jewish. Both my grandmothers are Holocaust survivors. And I saw what was happening. I saw this huge amount of energy behind President Trump, then candidate Trump. And I said to my editors at the Atlantic, we need to take this seriously. We need to cover it. We should be putting our resources here. Um, So it began with a few short profiles and documentaries. In one of them, I caught a room full of people breaking out into Nazi salutes. It's, it's in the film, but you might also remember it from five years ago because we put it out as a, a viral clip. And it was really important journalism because it clarified that this was a racist movement, an anti-Semitic movement. It wasn't a fun kind of conservatism. Charlottesville happened about eight months after that, uh, August of 2017. When that happened, it was obvious that this movement was only growing in strength and demanded something you know, as deeply reported as a feature film it's uh it's remarkable i do i i was saying this earlier to our audience about an hour ago when, when we first uh, the show kicked off i said this is not a documentary where where daniel and his team um you know cherry pick a bunch of clips out of youtube and then use stock footage and, and b-roll and and narrate some you are in the cars with these thought leaders, these these political influencers, you're behind the scenes. You are backstage with Richard Spencer and and with Mike Cernovich and with Lauren Southern, and you're on the you're on Gavin McInnes's TV, uh, the set of of his show. I mean, how did you gain this access? Did did you do it? I, I have to ask the question. I mean, did you do it in good faith? Did you? I assume you're a journalist. I'm assuming you're not misrepresenting yourself, but your access was incredible. Yeah, the access is one of a kind. And the film is really, I think, a primary source document. The hope is that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, historians, students look back at this film and say, we can't deny what happened in these four years of the Trump administration and beyond that racists and conspiracy theorists were empowered by social media, empowered by a president in the US, but also a far right in Europe. And they reached kind of mainstream legitimacy like never before. Um, You know, access was just a slow rigorous effort at gaining their trust and anyone who you know is a documentary filmmaker or investigative journalist is familiar with this you know you just keep showing up you keep pitching them you keep telling them i'm sincere um and i think the film you know reflects that like you said there's no narration um you know we contextualize what happens through montage through their own sound bites and i think ultimately show how delusional they are how broken they are emotionally but i was able to do that and the atlantic was able to do that through rigorous journalism and through access. This is the only film, like I said, that has this level of access. And just to make it super clear, the boundaries were always there. I was there to listen, I was there to understand, but I was not their friend. I didn't promise them any kind of coverage. None of them saw the film until it premiered at a festival last year. And none of them were happy with the film. Um, You know, we had complete editorial independence.
I don't want to uh, ruin. Um, I mean, your, your storytelling is masterful. And so I'm going to preserve the, the viewer experience. Um, but I would imagine you say none of these uh, these subjects are happy with you. Um, uh, you know, I would imagine probably right at the top of that list is, is Gavin McInnes. Have, have you had any interactions with the subjects of your of your film? And have they gone on the record with anything that, that might indicate that that there are some plans for some form of response, retaliation or otherwise? Yeah, I can't go into too much detail, but, the, you know, they're not they're not happy with it. Um, you know, the film is accurate and it's an accurate reflection of this movement. But it, it's difficult for people to look in the mirror sometimes and see their hypocrisies as glaring as they are. And I don't know if you're trying to avoid spoilers here, but, you know, some of these hypocrisies are so glaring. Um, you know, Mike Cernovich tweets diversity is code word for white genocide. You find out that he has a non-white wife and biracial kids who speak Farsi at home. They're half Persian. Lauren Southern, you know, is, 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 is shaming sexual assault survivors and then has to deal with sexual harassment herself, doesn't know what to do, do with it. And there's an even more dramatic reveal at the end of the film with her that I don't want to give away. But yeah, she, that, was the, uh, that was what I was trying to preserve, which I, yeah. my, my jaw hit the floor. Uh, number one, number one, I'm just going to say this and then I'm going to leave it at this. I couldn't believe she didn't put her hand over your camera lens and say, shut it off right now. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that you were still rolling on it. I couldn't believe. Uh, wow. People can find it. Uh, if people want to watch it, northwestfest.ca, you have to watch it. At what point? Charlottesville was was the turning point for a lot of people uh, where this was no longer something that was like, uh, you know, oh, the guy that I grew up with, he's like he's, he's wearing sort of like a, a Hitler-esque kind of a kind of a close tight shave or he's wearing the, you know, the telltale, you know, white pressed shirt with the khaki pants or he just loaded up on tiki torches at Lowe's or whatever. I mean, it, Charlottesville, where it, it all of a sudden became very real right where canadian politicians that had posed with you know like carrie diot his photos canadian mp posing with faith goldie all of a sudden that was a very uh, inconvenient photo to have out there because faith goldie was down there reporting uh, in deplorable fashion so bad that some of her friends like rebel media had to drop her up here and that's saying something it was a wake-up call for a ton of people and and you eulogize uh, the young woman who lost her life down there um, as a result of, of, of that dramatic uh, the, the, the homicide by vehicle that, that everybody remembers for you as a filmmaker, we need to remember that your journey, this was occurring in real time. Like this is this is a look back over the last four years. How significant in your process was Charlottesville? Charlottesville was a hinge moment for the movement. I mean, they reached mainstream legitimacy through President Trump. They were rising and rising and rising in parallel. Charlottesville was a PR disaster. I mean, they're a movement dedicated to preserving white power in the United States, in Canada, certainly in Europe. It's, a, it's really a transnational movement. And, and all countries that are majority white, they're concerned are becoming too multicultural, even though you know all of our societies, the US and Canada, were founded as immigrant societies, as places that people should come. You know, they were really making inroads and I would say continue to make inroads. It's a longer conversation in the Republican Party. But Charlottesville was just a PR nightmare in the way that January 6th was also a PR nightmare, the storming of the Capitol. You know, it was an indefensible act. They brazenly killed a young white protester. Um, and you see our subjects in the film openly inciting violence um, in Charlottesville. But, you know, many of them are talking openly about white replacement. The idea that, the idea that whites are being replaced. We then saw killings in New Zealand, 
in, Pit, in New Zealand at a mosque, in Pittsburgh at a synagogue, in El Paso in an effort to target Mexicans. And all of those shooters also left manifestos. And those manifestos like, were almost word for word the types of things that my subjects say about migrant invasions and white replacement. So Charlottesville, I think, you know, started to make it harder for them to organize, to raise money, but the, the kind of the violence they unleashed just continued and, 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 and remains, you know, the, the major domestic terrorism threat in America and also overseas. I mean, these people aren't going anywhere and they're willing to do anything they need, um, you know, to achieve their ends, which is to preserve a white majority. Where, where do you see this, this going? Uh, because I mean, on you know, you have these chilling clips. You're you're talking to Richard Spencer, you know, this this white nationalist leader or perceived leader, anyway, um, who talks about you know sometimes, and I can't quote him directly. I'm sure you could um, through the edit process. You've probably seen it 300 times. But doesn't he say something about sometimes? Sometimes there is blood and tears, or something like that? he has this kind of ominous statement near the end of the film where he kind of alludes to this. Uh, whereas yeah. at, at the same time. And I don't want to read too much into people's individual circumstances, but you've got Mike Cernovich hawking, you know, personal beauty and wellness products. Right. Uh, instead of talking about, you know, misogyny and date rape and, and all the other deplorable stuff. You know, you got Lauren Southern, who, who sort of takes a moment away and she's back in Vancouver and she's, you know, with child and she appears or you portray her to be chilled out a little bit. And and, and then you've got, you know, Southern himself, you know, living with his mom in Montana, wearing a or Norwegian sweater, sitting behind a piano and sort of seems to be somewhat out of the spotlight. One might be led to believe that this was somewhat of a flash in the pan under a Trump presidency. But I would suspect that people that assume that is the case might do so at their own peril. What do you think? I agree with that assessment. I mean, the film ends with somewhat of an optimistic note as it relates to the, these three individuals. These are deeply narcissistic people who basically laid their own graves, who hung themselves both metaphorically in my film, um, but also in their own careers. I mean, it's going to be difficult for them to work again, to, to get a job. You know, Cernovich will always find a way to get by pivoting from one thing to another. He pivots from alt-right, then it becomes a negative term. So he's, you know, center-right and he's selling supplements and now he's this and he's that. And Lauren Southern, you know, being quite privileged and, and now having a, a, a married partner and a child can recede from life and live somewhat comfortably. That being said, even though these, we should, you know, feel some, I guess, joy or, or pleasure in the fact that these individuals have indeed fallen. The ideas they represent, I believe, are now more mainstream than ever before. They're embedded in the Republic, the modern Republican Party. I mean, I heard your previous segment about Liz Cheney. It illustrates it pretty well. You know, she refused to tell the big lie that, that, that Trump, you know, lost the election. She says he lost and she's now being kicked out of the party, basically. She's losing her leadership position. The largest uh, TV show in the United States now is Tucker Carlson. He's saying things that, you know, my subjects were saying to me three or four years ago, things that were not on TV about migrant invasions and migrant, migrant caravans. Tucker Carlson is saying it every night on Fox News to millions and millions of viewers. Um, you know, Richard Spencer is never going to be the Republican Party, but a slightly diluted version um, is something that we're left with, something that resembles maybe Mike Cernovich or Lauren Southern. And even if Trump fades into the background like it seems like he is, I think the future of the conservative movement resembles someone like Lauren much more than it resembles Mitt Romney or George Bush or the stuff that we grew up with. 
you know, we've been, we've been talking, and, and this isn't just today, obviously, the conversation for a long time, and audience members have been chiming in on, on words that, that, that we see or hear invoked more frequently these days, and that includes Nazi, uh, slave, commie, communist, socialist. I mean, these, these are words that people fling around, fascist, for that matter. And we, we've been having a, an interesting discussion or debate around whether or not those words fit. And, and, and we selected that clip on purpose. Um, out of the gates here, Richard Spencer's appearance uh, essentially taken over by counter protesters, counter demonstrators uh, who essentially demand that he leave, who silence him, who cancel him in a way. And the, the gal asking him, uh, by the way, quite articulate, I thought she was, you know, essentially, you know, calling him a Nazi and him. He's going, what? Me? Huh? Right. Me? People, I'm not yeah. a Nazi. I want to localize an example. I recognize that we're talking to you. Are you are you? You're in New York City right now. Is that where we're talking to you from? I'm in New York, but I went to school in Canada. Oh, where'd you go? Uh, I, went to, I, went, I went to McGill, so I'm, oh, I'm familiar did. with Canadian politics. Oh, great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Another, another yeah. proud grad of McGill. Um, so you probably are aware, at least to a certain degree, of what's going on in Alberta. Alberta leads uh, case numbers in COVID uh, by a mm. mile, uh, nearly double of Ontario's per capita, et cetera. Um, and, on, and Alberta also has some of the most prominent anti-mask demonstrations. We've had mass gatherings in protest of public health orders, including rodeos and church services and Basically, every stereotype that you could possibly ever draw up about this part of Canada is playing itself out in in real time. Just last weekend, uh, a man well known to both civilians and law enforcement is his name is Arter Pavlovsky. He was taken into custody, as a matter of fact, in a dramatic takedown on the side of a freeway by Calgary police officers who cuffed him and carried him off for encouraging people to gather at a church service. And of course, all the usual suspects have come forward raising money, they say, for his legal defense, although we know that that's not not always where the funds go here you can see the arrest uh just off deerfoot trail in south calgary that's members of the calgary police service taking him into custody the video posted by his supporters and his team i believe his brother shot the video and posted on facebook well people are calling him a nazi and people will say well i don't know if that really fits and i want to credit this twitter account fighting for alberta that's that's tweeted to us at our hashtag Real Talk RG as we're talking to you this morning. They say, here's the photo. This is what I'm talking about. Calling some of these people Nazis is not an over-the-top reaction. This is Arter Pavlovsky at Calgary City Hall at an anti-mask rally in Calgary. I mean, that there's no other way to describe that except for the Nazi salute. He's surrounded by fellas that are holding tiki torches. I mean, in your mind, in that scenario, does the label Nazi fit? It's hard for me to say. I just don't know enough of the context, even though you did a great job explaining. I think for me, you know, Nazi is a, is a, is a, a, a dangerous word with a lot of power and should be reserved for, you know, sincere instances of Nazism. Richard Spencer, I think, is a neo-Nazi. He styles himself based on 20th century fascists like Hitler, like Mussolini. You know, his, he has, takes direct inspiration from them. And like Nazis, he believes in the superiority of whiteness. He believes that other cultures are less than whites and that whites don't only need to preserve their demographics the way that the Cernovich might say or Lauren would say. He, he's, you know, he believes in imperialism. He believes in conquering other groups of people. And he also believes in ethnic cleansing. He called it peaceful ethnic cleansing, the idea that we can pay people to leave. But what he means by that are minority groups, Muslims and Jews, even if those Muslims and Jews are white looking they're considered of Semitic origin. It might surprise you, but 
Jews in the alt-right are not considered white. They would have to leave in the eventual white ethnostate. So that is Nazism. You know, Lauren Southern, I, is a, I would say, is, is a white nationalist. She, she believes in preserving white demographics. And Cernovich, you know, who seems the most moderate on racial issues, flirts with that stuff as it's convenient. But of course, he also is a misogynist and a conspiracy theorist, so it doesn't make him necessarily better. He's just not a Nazi. So, you know, I use the word, I, I, I really reserve it for people who believe in ethnic cleansing in one way or another. And Richard Spencer does, and some of his followers do, and others are white nationalists. And I know it sounds weird to kind of divide them, but there is somewhat of a difference. Um, yeah. And it's important that things, you know, keep, I think, their historical context to some extent. We use we use words a lot now that don't necessarily have the meaning they were intended to have, like concentration camp or racist or Nazi. But as they apply to Richard, I think it's a pretty accurate depiction yeah yeah we've we've had some you know we, we've had uh there's a pretty high profile uh, you know who ezra levant is i'm sure the founder of, of rebel media co-founder um a jewish man uh who, yeah. who who was invoking the holocaust in his commentary on the arrest of mr pavlovsky last weekend right talking about finding Anne frank and check the attic and heavily armed police coming after jews and it was just a really i mean these things get torqued uh, to a point, I can see that you have a visceral response to that. What's going through your yeah, mind? Yeah, it's not it's not productive at all. Um, you know, Ezra Levant is like a far right hack, obviously, and he'll probably come after me for saying that. And you know, Rebel Media was, you know, one of the most powerful sources of far right propaganda, pro Trump media in the years leading up to Trump's election and directly afterwards with Lauren Southern, Jack Posobiec, Faith Goldie, many others. I mean, he built a very successful far right media empire basically which is not doing as well anymore and you know as someone with that experience it's an experience that i share i'm sure he has relatives who survived the holocaust you know that was a uh, rare, a, a unique historical moment two out of every three jews in europe were murdered 90 percent of jews in poland where my grandmother's from were murdered and she's still alive um you know it's important that we remember those events and you know call out ethnic cleansing and racism as it happens but certainly a man <laughs> You know, not refusing to wear a mask in Alberta does not qualify as a genocide. I mean, and, just, and Israel Levant knows that. He just knows the power of that. Well, of course he does. So he, of course he does. He just he, he knows how to set up fundraising websites and he knows how to take senior citizens pensions. That's what he does. Um, this audience member goes on to say, you know, you're talking about Pavlovsky raising his hand in the Nazi salute. He's, he's gone on to threaten the LGBTQ community, Muslims, leftists, progressives, so-called Antifa. Says it sounds to me like a similar list from the 1940s. So where do you see this going? I mean, you know, we talked to a, a guy by the name of Jason Kenny, not Alberta's premier a guy, a, a pretty contemplative and reasonable and quite delightful guy out of Richmond, Virginia, the other day who joined us on the show to talk about what it's like to face online vitriol from people who think he is Alberta's premier. And it started off as a really fun and entertaining conversation. And then we got serious and we started talking. He described himself as a, a pre-Trump Republican. And it's been an interesting thought exercise to, to ruminate over. I mean, you know, uh, heck, Liz Cheney's a classic example. Like, where is this party going and what does this party look like? And I know that there are a lot of, uh, you know, wh whether they're Reagan or Bush era Republicans, what have you, um, that have probably no appetite for the red MAGA hat. It, it would trigger them because it would represent, uh, to my mind, the desecration of their party. It also led to them having four years in the White House. But what does the future look like, do you think, of the Republican Party? I mean, there's certainly an undeniable political angle to all of this. What are you keeping an eye on present day and moving forward? I think it's 
without a doubt, still the party of Trump will remain the party of Trump. And even if Trump doesn't run in 2024, the ethos of the Trump administration is embedded into the is embedded into the modern Republican Party. The, 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 the idea that you have to trigger the opposition that came that was pioneered by people like Cernovich and Southern in my film is embedded into the modern Republican ethos. And I think what we're looking at is a future of politics in the U.S., but I would imagine Canada, too, and certainly already in Europe, where you have a center and left party like the Democratic Party that's committed to multiculturalism, that is pro-immigration, believes that, you know, the United States was founded on, you know, sin to some extent, but also promise, of course, that it was founded on ethnic cleansing of Native Americans and slavery, but also the promise that people are created equal. And there, I believe the Democratic Party, not that it's perfect, but will move more vocally in supporting multiculturalism and supporting it, uh, immigration and eventually, you know, you know, living up to these past sins, the Republican Party, you know, is going to continue, in my view, to double down on nativism, on a kind of implicit white nationalism, kind of whistling, you know, dog whistling to it the way Tucker Carlson does. And it's going to put people like Cheney or kind of never Trump Republicans like David Frum and a lot of these other guys who used to be part of the Republican Party in a very hard place because, Republican Party is, is not a big tent party for people of color. And as the U.S. becomes more diverse, that's, you know, that is now the fault line in American politics. It's where do you stand on changing demographics? Where do you, where do you stand on a more diverse nation? And the Republican Party is unwilling to accept that implicitly. And you see it in everything from, you know, claiming the election was illegitimate because of big turnouts in black cities like Philadelphia and Detroit, which is totally racially coded but also trying to disenfranchise voters. It's trying to stop immigration, you know, trying to stop DC from becoming a state which would give, you know, more people of color and the Democrats more power. Um, I'm really not a partisan. I don't, I'm not a lifelong Democrat or anything like that. I just, you know, think the US is an immigrant society. My grandparents came here fleeing persecution and a lot of people continue to do that. And I believe that's what this country should be. And I hope one day the Republican party recognizes that, um, you know, that's that's my hope. I think it might take 10 or 20 or 30 years for that to happen. I think this is honestly, I think we're in the middle of the story. If you're just uh, tuning in, streaming live on YouTube, uh, if you're listening, streaming live uh, via the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Daniel Lombroso, the filmmaker, the director of White Noise, which is the Atlantic's first feature doc, by the way. It's uh, being featured right now at Northwest Fest at northwestfest.ca. Daniel, how did this, uh, when, when it's all said and done, or maybe you, you've actually just sort of described it as, as a, a movement in process or a, a continuing sort of a thing, um, the process it had on you, the impact it had on you directly uh, what a four-year journey. Now the film's out. Now you're starting conversations like these. Now your work's getting in front of people. How did this impact you personally? Are you able to look back, uh, sort of a retrospective look? Definitely. I mean, in the moment, it was hard to kind of make sense of what was happening. I am what you call a one-man band filmmaker. So I was often, you know, shooting the camera, running sound, interviewing. Sometimes I had an assistant, but oftentimes I didn't. So what that meant is that I was alone, with either just my subject or sometimes dozens of people in the far right, you know, sitting with them, drinking with them, eating with them, getting to know them, you know, the kind of intimate stuff that you do with family or friends, but you don't typically do with, with racists. Um, and that was my entire life for really three years of production, but the project was four years from beginning to end, you know, across 12 States and five countries. It's the kind of crazy shit that is like just deep in my mind now. And I think, you know, one one day when I have some more distance, I'll probably write a memoir and 
kind of explain to people how crazy it was, but, you know, in short, it was a lot of, you know, kind of just upsetting, like anti-Semitic abuse, a lot of hate mail, a lot of manipulation, but also some sadness that these people, you know, I thought maybe would have the chance to change. Lauren is around my age. She's obviously very smart, even if she's misguided. And we got very close. I was never her friend. I was there to understand her. Um, but she, she leaned, you know, she would tell me things and kind of I became a confidant for her, even if I kept the line. And, you know, I thought she was so young that maybe she'd own up and, and say sorry. And for me, that's almost my, you know, my biggest, not regret, but my biggest sadness when it's looking back at this project is that these people are unwilling to take any responsibility. They're unwilling to be reflective at all. And, um, you know, everything I went through, you know, I, I, I think was for the greater good and, you know, is, is upholding my, my, my grandparents' legacies, you know, who came, who, who fled the Holocaust, who left, who lost a lot of their relatives. And, you know, they really taught me to, to shine a light and to document evil when it rises. And, you know, that was my goal and that really got me through it. But, you know, one day I'll unpack all of these crazy stories and maybe be back on your show in 20 years to, to talk about that. Well, the door, the door is, I mean, I, I, Daniel, you're, I would love to talk to you anytime because we're, we're only scratching the surface here. Let me tell I want to, this is an image I'm going to, that we're going to put an image up on screen that may be disturbing to some people, but it's important that we talk about this and confront this. I'm going to credit the Edmonton journal here. This is reporting by Johnny Wakefield, a journalist there. This is a, a photo that was captured on a property near Breton, Alberta, a rural property. This is just one example of uh, swastikas that have been seeing Hitler youth memorabilia that's been that's been seeing uh, flying in Alberta. And uh, I mean, obviously, groups like the, the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies have have been called B'nai B'rith have been called to comment on these types of images. I mean, what the hell are they going to say? Um, but, you know, the average citizen, the average person, I don't even know what I would do. I don't even know what I would do if I was driving past a property and saw uh, Nazi flags flying. Um I, 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 I don't even know if I want to go on the record now with what's going through my mind. Um, but obviously, you'd be dealing with somebody that's completely unhinged. Um, in the context of your role as director of this film, um, the, the grandson of Holocaust survivors, an engaged citizen and, and a storyteller, what do you say to people, the average citizen that's going to hear this podcast, that's going to watch this interview, and that's going to be troubled uh, by what they see in your film, troubled by what they see all around them, What's the call to action, so to speak? I think it's two things. One is to talk to your neighbors and to be aware how widespread racism, conspiracy, anti-Semitism remain. And I would say even our, you know, remain and are growing. Social media incentivizes really kind of dangerous behavioral patterns. The things that go viral online are the things that are provocative that are potentially racist or potentially anti-Semitic. It's way easier for something to go viral when you say, Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's like Mark Sinovich did than it is to say Hillary Clinton is a great fit for president. And I like her because she's accomplished. You know, we live in a, a news environment where provocation helps you. It helps you build a brand. You see that happen with Lauren and, 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 and Mike who use it to build their own brands. And I would just encourage people as they're going through their social media to really think hard about what they're reading, to think hard about what they're spreading and to talk to, you know, friends and family and neighbors and see what they believe the point isn't to shame anyone. I don't think shaming works. I don't believe in that. I have a lot of conservative family members, but, um, you know, to just be aware of the kind of, you know, racism that is still hard coded into all of our societies, including New York city, where I live, which is one of the most diverse places in the world. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, these individuals 
present a very powerful image to their followers. Gavin McInnes, like you said, but also Lauren and Mike and Richard. And if you watch the film, I think you'll realize really how empty these ideas are, that it's so easy to be seduced by hatred. It makes you feel good for a little moment, the way any drug makes you feel good for a moment. But, you know, as these, this drug wears off, you still have all your problems. You have to worry about how you're going to make money and if you're going to get married and what the purpose of life is. Like, these are not buying into white nationalism does not solve all your problems. It might make you feel good for a few months or maybe a few years. But if you meet all these people years later, they're still depressed and alone and still have the same existential questions. Um, so I would just encourage people if they're, you know, getting down that rabbit hole and they're starting to be radicalized to realize that it's not the solution and they're just going to end up right where they started, but with a really horrible reputation following them. The internet has a long memory. Uh, Daniel, I, I guess I can, I will say congratulations on the film. It is a remarkable story. I mean, you've just, I've, ne I've never quite seen anything like it. I couldn't, I actually under, I didn't quite understand what it was until I started watching it. And then I'm going, this isn't file footage. This guy's in the car. This guy's behind. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I was riveted for the 92 minutes or whatever it is. Um, people can check it out right now. White noise at northwestfest.ca screening on demand online all the way through till May 16th. And give Daniel a follow on Twitter at Daniel Lombroso. He did this as the Atlantic's first feature doc. He's now on staff at The New Yorker. It's really great to have you here on the show. Thanks for this. Thanks so much. I had a great time. You bet. Kim says, Kim says, listening to this while watching the girls play hopscotch outside right now is really something. She, Kim's describing all of us, describing all of us that have our normal, regular, everyday lives. And then you're aware of these underbellies that exist, right? I, I caution against the idea of thinking of it as an underbelly, though. Mm. And when we when we talk about it as someone being unhinged or... I don't like to use the word crazy, but sometimes that word gets uh, thrown around and it, it diminishes kind of the power and really, truly like the movement, like how it's not just one isolated incident that people are feeling. Um, people are feeling like they are not getting their fair share. And so they they try to figure out a way or they're seduced. I loved that seduced by hatred. Yeah. And how it's it can go viral and it has this ability to, yeah, get get shares and create an, an audience. There's this uh, th this quote uh, the the film s starts with a, with a quote on screen um, by Phil, uh, by uh, James Baldwin. It mm. says, uh, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And I thought that that was just, I actually, that was one, that was my first heads up that this film was no joke. I, you're like, uh Oh, here I, we go. I, you know, I hit pause and I just read it a few times and I was like, here we go. And it's pretty rare for me. Like I'm, I'm the guy that like when I'm watching docs or films or TV, I'm sitting on the floor and I'm folding laundry and I'm making lists and I'm catching up on emails. And that wasn't the case with this one. I was locked. I was just like locked in. I had to pause it a couple times just because I needed a moment. Yeah. Cause I was, I was overcome by, and I, I don't know. I don't want to be like, guess what you're missing out on folks. Like, um, 
uh, I don't want to talk about something that people don't have exper- the the experience of watching it, but I just I had to take a pause because it was so much to take on. It, it is was a lot to so take much on. to take on. Yeah, I encourage people to check it out again. Northwestfest.ca. Uh, our team, our friends at Kubi Energy, each and every Monday. This is the counterbalance to a lot of the stuff we just talked about. Important conversations, and we'll dig into them. We promise courageous conversations each and every week, but but also reasons to take a step to breathe right including positive reflections on our first broadcast of each and every week you share with us the stories of your your kids hilarious things they say or the person that paid it forward a random act of kindness or maybe the first daffodils in the garden of the year whatever we focus on your positive reflections you can submit them to talk at ryanjesperson.com the team at kubi energy is hard at work right now they've got industrial projects going jake kubiski the ceo is telling me a ton of residential work going on right now in bc and alberta they can cover western canada out of their two offices in kamloops and edmonton and they've got journeymen either electric, uh, electricians or electrical apprentices you know the job's getting done right plus they handle all your paperwork you're running do i get like a, is there like a subsidy or does the government help me out with this or they're the experts so you don't have to do the digging just check them out at kubienergy.ca also i mean you know when it comes to like conferences and getting together i don't have to tell you that that you know things are different these days right traveling especially for more remote or rural communities it's not always feasible right plus you add in the cost of basic registration flights accommodations and for a lot of people conferences just aren't possible not always feasible for a three-day event that's what's so great about this year's virtual canadian rural and remote housing and homelessness symposium being hosted by the rural development network and the rural ontario institute they're delivering conversations that matter to you directly to where you are so wherever you are you can join the conversation from june 1st to 3rd in whichever way works for you plus with only three weeks left before the conference make sure you use the code ryan to save 20 percent off your tickets at crrhh.ca that's crrhh.ca the promo code ryan to get 20 percent off C-double-R-double-H-dot-C-A to me is one of the more funs, more fun things I get to say as we recognize our partners. I like it. It reminds me of, of a- uh, it reminds me of the dog father back in the day. You know, S N double O P D O double J Z D O double J Z. It was like you know. We taught my mom how to recite that. She does a great job still to this day, <laughs> quoting Snoop Dogg. Sam, you ever put that in front of Sue? I, I don't think I've ever put Snoop Dogg lyrics in front of my mom. But, you've never uh, had you've we'll, never we'll had Snoop going on Snoop Dogg. Uh, yeah, we'll try that at the next family gathering. You know what? I wonder if maybe we could <laughs> mom, do Sam, check this out. <laughs> maybe maybe we could set up like like uh, you know sort of like a mom rap battle or something like that. This could be all part of our first real talk road trip. Oh my! I goodness. mean, the possibilities are endless. Possibilities are absolutely endless. Um, I, w- I wanted to note something interesting that's flying under the radar right now, and and we are going to be offering coverage of mayoral races in in big you know some big Canadian cities, including uh, Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different as we treat this as a national show, but obviously a show where a lot of our audience is right here in Alberta. So we will be speaking to candidates um, for mayor, probably as part of themed shows between now and the elections in October. Uh, I wanted to note something interesting that's happening today. Former Edmonton City Councilor um, and, and and a well-known entrepreneur, Michael Ashri is going to be officially he's filed his papers quite a while ago but he's officially announcing today uh, that he's going to be seeking the mayor's chair in the city of edmonton and he's got some vips that are joining him at the announcement and one of them really jumps out at me have you seen the list of the three that are joining him so he's got the ceo of pcl construction he's got a physician 
and he's got former Edmonton Oilers captain and Stanley Cup champion Andrew Ferentz that's going to be, I'm assuming, I mean, if you show up at the, that you're essentially endorsing him, um, we'll wait to see what happens and what Ferentz says. But here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Michael Oshry is, is, is infusing his platform into the environmental or green or sustainable conversation. That's what I read it. I don't I don't think he's reaching out necessarily just to sports fans or Oilers fans or hockey fans with this. I think it's I think it's a bit of a nod to what I'm expecting is going to be an environmental angle on his campaign. So I think that's going to be interesting because, you know, I think that that should be part of a conversation as part of a mayoral race. But from what we've seen so far, we haven't seen really robust platforms released yet uh, in either of the cities. Not really. Um, but this could be an interesting one and it gives us, you know, it gives uh, motivated and and uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, engaged voters an opportunity to start looking for specifics in what platforms are offering. Yeah, I'm, maybe this is not something that I should be admitting, but here we go <laughs> um, that I'm, I'm not really paying attention yet. Yeah. Like I'm kind of like, I'm going to just, I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to wait until, say, August. Well, there's not a lot to pay attention to right now. That's true as well. Um, how about you, Sam? How about me? Um, I am, okay, so it, it, on the record here, because as a journalistic institution, we should have full disclosures. My partner is working on another mayoral campaign. So, like, my head's been in campaigns for the last eh, month or so. Oh, fair enough. Um, so, I, like, I, I get to hear about it all the time. But But I agree, like... In in Edmonton, in these, in these municipal elections, like, as I recall, you, you get murmurs of who's running, like, going into the summer. Everyone kind of takes the summer off, and then, like, boom, end of August, September is when campaigning really, really, really heats up. So, you know, I, aside from the some personal connections that I have to it, um, yeah, I'm pretty checked out on it this early, too. It, it, it feels so early to be worrying about this. Yeah. Sandra wonders, is Mike Nickel coming on the show? Uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I want to talk on the record about Mike Nickel yet. I'd love to. I'd love to interview Mike Nickel. But if he comes on the show, he's going to get his ass kicked. He should probably know that. I got a lot of things to say to Mike Nickel. Um, and if you want the background on that, you can just read Edify's innovation issue. This month. you get the backstory on why I can't stand that weasel. This, uh, are you talking about this? Oh, oh that issue? one there. This that, issue? Oh, yeah, that is the issue I was talking about. Yeah, the, the, the one fired from talk radio, Ryan Jesperson, now the prince oh. of podcasting. Oh, yes, that yeah, is this one. Okay. Yeah, that is. I, I don't think that I can ask people to call me your highness yet. Is when do you do you get? So to I be, don't need to do that. I thought you said I had to do, do that. Do you get to be your highness when you're a prince? No, I think his royal highness. Oh yeah, because his, his royal highness, Prince Philip. Yeah. Right. Passed away hrh prince philip right his royal highness so i need to so i can stop doing that now yeah no (laughs) no more kissing the ring okay well it was fun while it lasted yeah it was fun while it lasted i I do want to because like we did some heavy heavy stuff today and i just i really want to um flag something that i think is just like a gem and i'm really excited about it um that the university of calgary has a free tuition contest going on. And you might be like, what are you talking about, Sarah? How is that good news? Wasn't well, it Lethbridge? What did I say? Calgary. You're right. Okay. Lethbridge. Yeah. Thank you. Whoa, where's my hat at? All good. Calgary, apparently. So they are actually, anybody that is a student that is enrolled uh, for the fall, they could receive, if they get a vaccine before September 8th, they are entered to win there are nine available scholarships for full tuition and fees for the fall of 2021. That's so great. 
Yeah, free tuition if you get vaccinated. I love it. I mean, qualify for free tuition. If right, you get sorry, vaccinated. yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a great, you know, haters are going to say, well, if they could afford to do that, if they could afford free tuition, if they could afford to offer free tuition, maybe they should face a few more cutbacks, these high on the hog post-secondary institutions. Yeah. Can you just let me like bask in the glory? No, of the- I know. I've, I've worked in I, I worked in talk radio for six <laughs> years. I'm jaded and cynical and calloused and all of the things. My faith in humanity is destroyed. It was until I came here and I found you. I found all of you. And every morning I show up with a hop, skip and a jump in my step and optimism abounds oh. on Real Talk. We're back at it tomorrow. Tomorrow's show is going to be a unique one for us. Sarah has put together a formidable lineup. It's one of our only themed shows. In other words, unless all hell breaks loose or there's a major news event, we're only talking about hunting, food, sustainability, ethics. Get your emails in now to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We can't wait for it. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Have a great day. The gun.